episode 241 hot shot scott after a week off memorial day where were i thought you were in spokane now you're telling me you were in wenatchee yes sir is that the same definitely not the same uh, thanks I mean, for carrying uh, the bag. don't make me tell that story it's, <laughs> it's not good there's like one person who knows that story out there thanks for carrying the bag how is when i think i'm going to wenatchee i don't think i've ever been to I'm going to Yakima or whenever, you know, baseball tournament right, or something. Right. I think I am. I think Wenatchee's kind of known for hosting lots of baseball oh, and softball. Is Wenatchee and Yakima kind of like next to the world, door to one another? I don't know. Are Maybe they like no. sister cities? I think they're both east of the mountains as far as I they know. They have lots of high rises in oh, a big downtown area. You betcha. Oh, right. oh, they got it all. What's the Palm Springs of the state of Washington? That might be Yakima, yeah. actually. Is that where you're going? I don't know. Yak Vegas, they call it, too. Really? We used to be on the air there, so it's just one of our many affiliates, Mitch, I have to say. Hot shot. Hot shot. So how was it? Did you guys do well? uh, Yeah, they won the silver bracket or whatever This was basketball or softball? This was softball. Softball. Yeah. So 24 teams are in She's a catcher? Yeah, played outfield, too. Uh, 24 teams are there. They play five games. The top eight are in the gold, single elimination, and they're in the silver, and they mercyed in the championship. How are the wheels these days? Her wheels? Yeah. Pretty damn good, actually. Really? Yeah. Unsoden-like, or... What is unsoden? <laughs> this kid had wheels. Unhot shot? I'm played, asking. I'm just asking. I played running back at 230 pounds. I don't know. I don't know. You, what, you played fullback? This you guy will, a lot. This, what do you this, want? This guy can move. For 230 pounds, I was pretty fit. Now, and she's actually made a concerted effort to get yeah. like five pounds off. Yeah. She's going to take a little... So she she had a stand-up triple. She uh, Really? She short hopped a couple the, of errors uh, on the play. <laughs> she one hopped the 250 foot fence, which is a pretty good shot. Maybe I'll send you the video. You love when yes, I send videos of my I kids would like to, to you. Yes, I would, you would. Sure, I would. You can judge the wheels for yourself. Sure, there. I would. I have a request. Uh-oh. I don't know whether it's in your future to open a nice restaurant, but I have a request. Okay. If you ever open a nice restaurant, Hot Shots got that's relatively expensive. Okay. With good food. Sure. Don't nickel and dime your customers. Interesting. Okay. It's kind of a pet peeve of mine <laughs> at nicer restaurants that are somewhat pricey. I don't even know how one could nickel and dime a customer. I'm going to give you an example of how to nickel and dime a customer. Does it involve the restroom or no? Because that, that's always off-putting when you go and you have to pay for a paper. No, 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 no. You're, you're, on the, you're not on the Okay, right I just want to make sure because yeah. those things bug me. But We record this on a Sunday last, a rare Saturday night out for Mitch Levy. Wow. Yeah, old stomping grounds, top of Queen Anne. Were you really? Last night. It's weird because I was in Fremont last night. You were? Well, you're a we're, man. You're a man of the world. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I just asked my friends. They'll tell you. I used we to were back both in, in the Seattle day. on Saturday night. That's we were so both weird. in Seattle. Uh, I was in Queen Anne. Okay, go ahead. When I used to live there, I used to go to the five spot for oh, breakfast. Delightful. They would change it like every six weeks. Oh, the, yeah. You know, the motif. The ro- they, they, I don't know what they call it. <laughs> I don't think it's a motif. What do they call yeah, it? Yeah. They, they change would, the menu. They would rotate the menu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd go to the Queen Anne Cafe. Uh-huh. I don't know if it's still there. Yeah. The Paragon. Oh, yeah. Paragon. Remember Paragon up sure. there on the left? The Ghetto Monks used to play there all the time. There was a place called the Hill Topper. Which had an amazing chicken sandwich. I have no idea if the Hilltopper is still there. I don't know. But either. they had the greatest chicken sandwich that was offered anywhere in Queen Anne. <laughs> okay. Jesus, doing an ad for him now. In fact, in fact, I'll have you know before I tell you the story about nickel and diming. I'll have you know that when I moved to Seattle on, I want to say, January 13th, 1995. Okay. Tom Lee put me up in a 
rental apartment, a short-term rental until I found the place that I wanted to live. And it was somewhere over there in Queen Anne. Okay. And I got up on a Saturday morning, my first day in Seattle ever as a resident, and I had nowhere to go. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything. Yeah. And I spent some time, like a couple hours in that QFC. Oh, yeah. You at the top of Queen. It's kind I of have. sad and pathetic, actually. Yeah, you've, you've told that. What's so sad and pathetic? But you had nothing to do but hang out in a grocery store? I didn't know even where I was. <laughs> I didn't know where Seattle <laughs> was. I didn't know a soul out was here. Space so I went to the space needle or Well, I went to the grocery store to get some groceries for the rental apartment. Mm-hmm. But since I didn't know anybody and have anything to do, I kind of stayed in there yeah. for a few hours. <laughs> Oh, the DiGiorno's a two for 10? Holy shit, what a deal. <laughs> I mean, what are you doing in there? So I decided, my wife and I decided that I was going to be social last night. We went out with another couple. Wow. Had to laugh at their stupid jokes and shit. I gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> we did a restaurant called Grappa, G-R-A-P-P-A. Okay. You shake your head like you know it. Well, it, Grappa's a kind of like, um, it's, kind of, it's a, a liquor. Oh, it Grappa. is. I think it might be like a Greek no, liqueur this, yeah, or something. Yeah, this is kind of an Italian-ish okay. restaurant. Because I've had shots of Grappa. It's not even at the top of Queen Anne. It's kind of over the top. You know how you get to the top of Queen Anne? I was never allowed to go past that. Oh, sure. I understand. But if you go to the top of Queen Anne, it actually go, starts to go back down on the other side. Most hills do. <laughs> go on. Yeah, I'm with it's you. It's a place called Grappa, G-R-A-P-P-A. Okay, maybe it I'm came, thinking of something else. It came highly recommended by the other couple. We'll call the other couple for the sake of the conversation, the story, Jacques and Raquel. Okay, gotcha. By the way, grappa is an Italian liqueur. liqueur okay, or not. so there you go. Yeah, I've had it. It's pretty so good. So it's an Italianish restaurant. Okay. Nice night. Sure. We're ordering drinks. My friend gets the old-fashioned. Oh, yeah, nice. His wife gets some fancy drink with a smoke bubble on top. Have you ever seen a smoke yeah, bubble? Yeah, that's pretty fancy. Light something on fire, and they put a bubble in her drink, and then it goes poof, yeah, it's pretty, and smoke oh, comes all out Great yeah. for about $10. <laughs> for just the bubble, by the way. My wife got some focaccia fancy drink. I don't know what she got. You don't remember? And then there was no. I don't know what she got. Aperol spritz. Something spritzer. I think it was something spritz. Okay. And then I asked for oh god an iced tea. Ugh, you're a lot of fun. What? Go ahead. Yes. I asked tea. for an iced tea. I said I'd like a little iced tea with a splash of lemonade. Oh no. The server said, an Arnold Palmer. I said, no, yeah, an Arnold Palmer, but I just want mostly iced tea. Just give me a little splash of lemonade, right? When I ordered it, the other couple, they said, oh, that's so funny. That's the way we like it. And I don't know if they were being nice, yeah. but that's the way we drink our iced tea or Arnold Palmer's. Mostly iced tea with a splash of lemonade. That's so yeah. funny that you drink it that way. That's the way I drink it. So we're having fun. We're telling stories. I'm pretending to be comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> right and interested I'm the looking. appetizers come yeah another iced tea with a splash of lemonade comes to the table as the entrees come and by the way the appetite octopus i had it was great okay good uh, a salad we had all kinds of good food for appetizers now the entrees come and our server asks would you like another round another iced tea with a splash of lemonade and the other couple decides they're not going to continue to drink alcohol they say We'll have what he's having exactly the way he has it. Well, we come to find out that at Grappa, (laughs) G-R-A-P-P-A, they've been charging me for all the refills of the iced tea with a splash of lemonade. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, really? Yeah. $35, $40 entrees. The bill was $400 over $400. 
and you're charging me for refills of an iced tea with a splash of lemonade. And we all start to kind of laugh. And the waiter's a little uncomfortable. He's like, house policy, it's not me. And we're like, we know it's not you. But yeah, right, right. I mean, c- come on, really, you're charging me for... And he says, we offer free refills of iced tea. But as soon as you included the splash of lemonade, the drink no longer qualifies for free <laughs> refills. <laughs> If we start giving out shots of lemonade left and right, we're going to be out of business before we know it. Are you are you being serious right now? He's like, yeah. And so we're all laughing. And oh. I make some comment like, well, then I guess that's the most expensive splash of lemonade that right. I've ever ordered in my life. You never even had a whole lemonade. You had three splashes. Because at this point, I think I've had like 12 of the things. You know, they're small glasses. So Yeah, yeah right. And they're, and they're just bringing them out oh. left and right. Not oh. cutting me off. They're just bringing them out left yeah. and right. Little did I know I'm paying for every single one of them. So we all start to laugh yeah. at the at the table. We're enjoying the meal, but this is like ridiculous. Here we are. The tab is over $400 and they're dinging us for a splash of lemonade. Now it's dessert time. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. The other couple, let's call them Jacques and Raquel. Okay. They get the bread pudding, lovely. I'm sure it's nice, yeah. They bring a couple of spoons out. Others take a taste. Probably 15 bucks, the bread pudding. At which time the server asks, now that we've already gone through all this, would you all like another round of iced tea with a splash of lemonade? (laughs) Raquel says, I'll tell you what. I'll play by house rules. I'll just have a refill of just the iced tea. Right, right. No splash of lemonade. At which time the server says what? There's a limit on how many refills? Ma'am, sorry. You haven't had an iced tea technically yet. (laughs) So there's nothing to refill because she never had one. You technically, (laughs) ma'am. Have not had an oh iced tea God. left. So I have to charge you for the oh. iced tea. But everyone after that, if you continue to get iced teas, oh. will be free refills. All day long. You All can sit here long. till 3 a.m. drinking 3 iced tea until your bladder bursts. And we, at this point, we thought, okay, this guy has got to be joking right, now. At right, this right, point, right, yeah. we've now had a laugh about the splash of lemonades. Serious as a heart attack. Do you know who I blame? Who do you blame? I don't blame the management for the policy, but I, I blame the management for scaring the hell out of these servers to where there's like no human element left because well, they don't want to lose server. Their... I know that, right? Yeah. yeah. And I just go get the iced tea if I want it. It's just sitting there. You just hit the thing. Well, why, why can't he just bring it? Like, what's going to happen? Is he really going to be fired if he brings oh. one iced tea on the house? He's playing by the rules and you think he's too petrified to exactly. have a little flexibility. Of course. There's no human element left. No flexibility. You think that Especially after, after you bitched about after it. After we la- had of a good course. laugh. He's seriously not going to give her the, the... Right. Because it doesn't qualify as an iced tea. I know. You go back, you hit the little gun with the iron you hit the... Hot shot. I was this close to saying, okay, you want to play this game? <laughs> then technically we were entitled to half iced tea and half lemonade with all 12 of them. <laughs> That's right. And we've been getting splashes. I want you to bring out all the lemonade I haven't gotten yet. In it to go. (laughs) Let's go. Start bringing it out in barrels. I was this close. But the point is, and this is what I say nickel and diamond. You said, how do they nickel and dime? It's a nice restaurant, this Grappa, G-R-A-P-P-A. The food was delicious. The ambiance was great. It was a sunny night. Oh, it was beautiful weather, yeah. We forked over 400 and some odd dollars between the four of us. We should have been getting into the car and driving home talking about how good it was and how delicious. What did you like the best? 
The whole ride home, the only thing we talked about right. was the fact that they were nickel and diming us over a splash of lemonade. Yeah. They were like five, six dollars. So every one of them was like six dollars. We get the bill and it's like Ugh. nine. And it actually says on the bill, I couldn't believe this, iced tea with a splash of lemonade. $80 worth of iced tea. <laughs> <laughs> How much does it cost? Oh, forget it. How iced much tea. does it yeah. cost the restaurant to give me an iced tea? I know. With I a know. splash of lemonade. Yeah. Why? If I mean, I paid $45 for my chicken. <laughs> right. We paid $38 for the scallops with the piccata sauce. It was delicious. <laughs> Why can't they just give me an iced tea with a splash of lemonade? Yeah, and just give your servers a little flexibility. Just a little flexibility. Come it's okay on, Grappa. If, if he brings out an iced tea on the house, he's not going to get... Because <laughs> what you got to focus on in customer service is you got to focus uh, on retention. Like, they want you to come back. Right. Not talk about getting yes. nickel and dimed that's on the what, way home, which well, that is all you talked about. That's what my point is. We should yeah. have been talking on right. the way home, but we got to go back here. That's right, because 99% of it was great, right? You loved the food. You loved everything. So you probably would have gone. So back. they, of course, right? Of course, yeah. So they let the splash of lemonade. That's right. Very worth it. Yep. Cost them a return. That's right. Visit. That's uh, short-sighted. Mitch Unfiltered is available on all podcast platforms. We're going to nickel and dime you for the uh, for the <laughs> patron right. shows. Speaking of that, uh, subscribe and rate us, please, on Apple. Also, did you know that we host several weekly short-form shows available to Mitch Unfiltered patrons? $5 a month. We got the peace shows with Danny O'Neill this week, the shooting the shit with Slick. We got the Mariners note table, Jason Churchill, Joe Doyle. Become a Mitch Unfiltered patron by going to MitchUnfiltered.com. And if you can't swing the $5 a month, just write me, Mitch at MitchUnfiltered.com. Or if you just have something to say about the show, like Jeff. Oh boy. Dear Mitch, I chuckled yesterday when I heard your conversation with Scott about the quote, beaches in Oregon on your last podcast. <laughs> I moved out to Seattle in 1994 as well. Last year, I got a, into a heated debate with a college buddy when I pointed out to them that the beaches in Washington and Oregon aren't beaches at all. A beach is a place where you can go sit and lay down in the sun without catching hypothermia. <laughs> a beach is not a place where you need to wear jeans, a thermal, a sweatshirt, and a raincoat yeah. just so you can enjoy the ocean for more than 10 minutes. Oregon and Washington, Mitch, have coasts. Yeah. They don't have beaches. Interesting. Keep up the good work, Jeff. It's very, very... I've been to Ocean Shores a lot in Washington. It's very rare that you go and it's burning hot. I no. mean, occasionally it's sunny out there, but yeah, it's always overcast and no one's like swimming. It's not... Is Ocean Shores the place that I went to where they parked the cars right on the beach? Oh, sure. Yeah. It's, you're allowed oh. to drive on the beaches in the state of Washington. Ooh. Yes. That's no good? Again. Why is that no Are good? Are they driving on the beach in the Côte d'Azur in the south of France? <laughs> Probably not. Are they driving their Bentleys and their Lamborghinis on the sand? Or are they putting them in a parking lot and then going out and enjoying the sand? Yeah. And why do we need tire marks and oil drips and gasoline? Why do we need that on the beaches? As someone who owned a Jeep Wrangler for a while, it's pretty damn fun driving your Jeep on the beach, I must say. I'm kind of I'm kind of with Plus you can you can do like the the mopeds and the you know all that stuff on the beach and yeah, see, that, that that doesn't bother me, driving on the beach. I've actually been pulled over for going too fast on the beaches. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't bother me. Okay, but again, that but is so weird. Now, maybe this is the East Coast transplant in me, but the idea of driving on the beaches is stupid. It's dumb. Yeah, I bet, again... It's the, natural to you, I guess. The beaches, like he said, on the coast, they're not like Waikiki. 
No. Right. No, so no. it's so it would be well, weird to well, drive may, it on Waikiki. Well, maybe instance. they're not like Waikiki because you've been driving on the beaches <laughs> yeah. for the last 15 or years. Or maybe the sun was another yeah, reason. Yeah. So Kevin writes, hey, Mitch, longtime listener from the KJR days, was thrilled when you started the podcast. Love the format and the sports stuff as well as the non-sports stuff. You and Scott are great together. His lack of sports knowledge is overlooked <laughs> by his other contributions. Got behind on the episodes a little and just listened to 238. Greatly appreciated the shout out to Gordon Lightfoot. Oh, nice. Haven't heard that song in a long time, but could hear the melody as you guys were singing. Immediately downloaded Sundown to my library and listened multiple times. The interviews on 238 were awesome as well as they usually are. This email may be a bit long-winded for you to read on the air, but if I could encourage newcomers to the show to do anything... It would be to go back and listen to episode one of Mitch Unfiltered. Emotional and heartfelt. Appreciate all you do. Bringing some joy to my slow work week. Keep on kicking ass. Signed, Kevin. That's very nice. I was kept waiting nice? for the... However, but <laughs> well, it never threw, came. He threw you under the bus. Yeah, a little bit. My, uh, but again, he's not wrong. It's fine. It's fine. No, he is kind of wrong. I don't watch sports like I used to. You I've said were it many watching times. the Washington women's softball team. You were giving that I know. You yes. were giving play-by-play updates <laughs> on Twitter of the Washington. My two tweets. Yes, I what was. What the hell? Yeah, that I watch. Yeah, the women's softball I watch. You do not anymore because they're out. Party's over. Apparently, the dogs are done. Correct in yeah. both baseball and softball. Yep. It was elimination Sunday for the University of Washington on this uh, sunny day. Anyway, guests. By the way, Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah. If you could read my mind, that's the song I love. If you could read my mind, go back and you listen. You don't to like Sundown? No, I, I love Sundown. I, I, he's got like four that I love. Yeah, but if you could read my mind, just always gets overlooked. If it's, you could read my yep. mind now, yeah, what I tell yeah. I don't know the words, but. Yeah. It's really yeah, a beautiful song. So go listen to that one, everybody. All right. You want guests on episode 241? Yes, please. And then we'll start officially. I asked my old Mariner fan favorite, Mike Cammy Cameron, to come on. Oh, okay. It's a true story. I texted him. I, I sent him a note. I said, hey, would you come on for 15 minutes to reminisce about being traded for Griffey? That 2001 season, the yeah. all-star game that was here that year. Four home runs in one game, if I'm not mistaken. Ichiro, the four home run game. Yeah. He's like, yeah. Yeah, of course I will. Nice. 45 minutes later, we were still... <laughs> At 15 minutes, huh? <laughs> it was so fun. We're laughing about reminiscing. and Good. So instead of a 15-minute segment, we've got literally two interview segments. The first two interview segments are Mike Cameron. We split it into oh, two. Oh, nice. Okay, great. All right? So guest one is Mike Cameron, and guest two <laughs> yeah. is Mike Cameron. It's okay. pretty amazing that, you know, he had to replace Griffey in a sense. And he somehow, I don't know what the, how to. Yeah. It's not that I know he like lived thinking. up to it, but. I, I, I know what you're thinking. Like we couldn't have hoped for anything better than Mike Cameron in, in my mind, right? He somehow. He won the fans. He yeah. started making plays That's up against right. the wall, saving yep. home runs, diving catches. We didn't even know who he was. He came <laughs> yeah. from Cincinnati. And this guy, you know, and he was an all-star in 2001. I mean, he wasn't Ken Griffey Jr. Right. But. Right, somehow. He was really a lovable character, a lovable yeah, guy. No had doubt. The hat on crooked. Yep, yep. Had the inside of his back pocket used to be flipping around. He used to, remember that? Oh, really? Pop, he flipped it out, the back pocket? Yeah, until he's going to tell the story. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah. I can't wait to hear. Yeah. I love Cameron. You kind of forget you about him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cammy. Yeah. Two segments of Mike Cameron. Good. I think you'll really enjoy it. I think you'll really enjoy it. And then the third 
The third interview segment was actually inspired by you. Okay. Because on episode 240, I brought up in the RIPs, if you remember, two weeks ago, the passing of one of the greatest football players of all time. Maybe one of the top five or ten greatest football players of all time, the great Jim Brown, Mm -hmm. who also went to Syracuse University. And you, like, were a roadblock. You jumped in and you stopped me and you're like, no. No, we are not going to trumpet this guy's career because you had all of the all of the allegations of domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. He beat up women. He beat up young girls and so forth. Just a bad, bad individual. Right. So I never like really it, yeah. got the chance because mm-hmm. you stopped me in my tracks. I tried to help you. Not not sure you wanted to jump in bed with how great that guy was. I mean, we can do OJ next if you'd like about how great he is, too. Go ahead. I'm trying to help you. I was just trying to help you. Well, Go on. so. I never really got a chance to talk about the kind of athlete that he was. Incredible athlete. Yeah. Because you wouldn't let me do it. Well, it's your show. I wouldn't let you do no, it. No, you wouldn't let me do it. You stopped me in my tracks. And let me tell you about it's the your tracks. House and your I show. was on the beach <laughs> yeah. driving my Ferrari. That's right. And stopped me in my tracks. So you left here and then we took a week off and I was like, is it just that cut and dry? Hmm. Are we just bearing the guy both literally and figuratively or is it complicated? Is there any other angles? Is there So what I did was, with no agenda, I swear there was no agenda, I contacted the author of the book, 2018 book, Jim Brown, Last Man Standing, okay. who wrote everything that you need to know about Jim Brown, including the 10 domestic, allega- domestic dispute allegations, mm-hmm. spent like a week or two weeks with him, living in the house with him to write this book. And I invited him on, to talk about the complicated story of Jim Brown. Okay, good. And it was all inspired by you. Good, I'm glad you did, actually. And, and, and to be fair to you and everybody else, I started off with the bad stuff. I okay. didn't bury the bad stuff. I didn't try to pretend like it didn't happen. We went right, I went right out of the gate to all of the, uh, the abuse towards young women. Good. So we started there, and I, I'm asking you to listen. Like, I asked you to listen oh, to Angela Zhang. This show, yeah. Did you listen to Angela Zhang? Of course, she was awesome. I couldn't 14 years old. It hit me that she's going to play high school golf. Like as great as she is, she's just going to go play <laughs> for Bellevue, Bellevue High school. school. Like, holy shit. I, I texted you. I feel bad for whoever's second best in state. She's no going to play. She's going to play at the U.S. Women's Open at Pebble Beach <laughs> right. and the next week in the District 9 semifinals. <laughs> That's exactly right. I know. Right now, there's some senior in high school. Who's, who's destined to win state by far. Like, they're so excited about their senior year. And then here comes this freshman just going to mop the floor with everyone. So, right, yeah. so you listen to Angela Zang. She was awesome. Did yeah. you listen to your buddy Spencer Hawes tell of his course, stories? Yeah. yeah. Did you like him? I love Spencer. You love the stories? Love it. Yeah. He's, he seems like such a great dude. All right. So I'm asking you, yeah. because you inspired it, okay. to listen to the full interview with Dave Zirin, the author of the Jim Brown book. Okay. And then come back in episode 242 next week mm-hmm. and we'll discuss Jim Brown. Whether you have any other thoughts about him that are different than the ones you harbor right now. Okay. Because you, you're predisposed to hate the guy. If everything is true, and this seems like a lot of smoke where there's fire, yes. combined with he was arrested multiple times, one of them throwing a woman off a balcony, you know, because when he said she, well, she recanted her story and said she slipped. Because we all know when you slip, yeah jump straight up over a balcony, right? Typically when you slip, right? You just jump straight up over, right? So if if everything's true, then yes, I am predisposed to not like that person. Okay. Correct. And then by the way, football-wise, yeah. I know people like to call him one of the five or 10 greatest. I just did. 
I know. It, was he really though? Oh like, my god! He's before my time. Like, oh my god! But like, let's let's say twenty-three-year-old Jim Brown tried out for the Seahawks this summer. Oh, you don't do that. Okay, exercise. I'm just asking. No, we never do that exercise. I feel like I could have made if, the if, NFL if, when he played. If, if Joe, <laughs> I mean, come on. If Joe DiMaggio played baseball, would okay, he be all right. I'm I mean, just are really, asking. Are we really going to do that? I don't. I don't know why we can't. Like, what? Do you he, think, come on. Would 23-year-old Bo Jackson make the Seahawks? People feared him. You're going to hear Dave Zirin say he's not only one of the greatest football players, he's one of the greatest athletes of the 20th century. Okay, fine. And and he'll explain why. We talk about all the domestic problems, his civil rights efforts. We talk about his role with L.A. gangs, film appearances. You don't know about his complicated relationship with Richard Pryor. I'll bet you you don't know about that. No, I don't. You're going to be fascinated by that because you love Richard Pryor. Sure, you have yeah. to love, Who Richard Pryor. love Richard Pryor. I will listen with an opened mind. No, you don't have to have an open mind. And or ears and or listen. heart. I will listen, I promise. Yes. Episode 241 Hot Shot doesn't happen without our partners like Daniel's Broiler. Probably shouldn't say this too loud, the Levy Jinx. But the first few days of June weather-wise, crazy nice. Brings me to outdoor dining at Daniel's Broiler on the deck at Les Shy, the Sea Plains at South Lake Union, overlooking the world at Bellevue Place. Daniel's Broiler, you gotta love them. World class steakhouses. Evergreen Golf Call, tax advisors, certified financial planners, and experienced portfolio managers working together to bring retirement planning taxes and investments under one roof. Evergreengk.com, more than just a financial advisor. Evergreen is everything wealth. Zeke's Pizza, celebrating a complete makeover of their mobile app. Remote ordering has gotten easier than ever. Download and try it. Get yourself a Cherry Bomb or Puget Pounder right to your door. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. John Waterstrat and Fireside Home Solutions, the flagship Bellevue location just underwent a facelift, and it was beautiful to begin with. Whether it's a brand new fireplace inside or out or garage doors, begin and end your search at FiresideHomeSolutions.com. And the Woodenville Office of Cross Country Mortgage. If you go buy everything you read or hear about interest rates, you'd never buy a house. Then why are houses still being sold? They are in my neighborhood because of the creative mortgage people like Jordan Flowers and his team. So if you're buying a home, a second home, an investment piece, just give Jordan a call. He may surprise you. 425-890-2957. All right. The warm-up is over, and officially 241 begins right now. Unfiltered. The guy that they replaced Robbie Ray with has come in in his first four or five starts, and I don't know whether this is going to continue, has been like one of the best pitchers in the American League. Unfiltered. Had they gone out and just spent a little uncomfortable money that they didn't want to spend, and they had gone out and gotten another or a better bat or two, and let's say instead instead of being 28th, 29th, 30th in all these categories, let's just say they were 15th. Mitch is Unfiltered. Episode 241 is officially underway. I haven't really been keeping an eye on the Mariners that much. How have they been doing lately? Any good? I'm sure they've put it together. They're gonna they've peeled together like eight out of ten or something lately. <clears throat> no? Sounds like it. <laughs> I've been watching like Husky softball and my daughter's softball. I'm coaching basketball. I haven't what been an eye on What are we going to do with the 2023 Seattle Mariners? Now, again, I think you know the date of when we, we were ready to fire everyone. give it to you. 
Okay. I'm going to give it to you. Okay. I just want to know if we're there yet. <laughs> That's the magic number for me. Well, what you're talking about was that on June 19th, 2022. It's oh, closer than I was hoping. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Two 50, weeks. Jesus Christ. On June 19th, yeah. 2022, it was a Sunday night. Oh. They had just lost three in a row to the Angels. I think they had lost three out of four, but three in a row on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Yeah. They were 29 and 39, and we recorded Mitch Unfiltered. Yep. And I was at wit's end. Mm -hmm. And I think what I said to you, and I'm going to paraphrase on that show, is we need change. Because if yous can change, <laughs> and eyes can change, all right. we alls can change. I just and watched that. it recently. It was they so did. good. I think what I said is, and you can go back a year ago now, 29 and 39, I think what I said was something like, I'm not even sure Scott Service isn't a good manager. And I'm not sure that Jerry DePoto isn't a good GM. What I'm sure of is it ain't working. I just can't watch it anymore. Yeah. And they need change. They were 29 and 39. That was June 19th. Okay. They then went 61 and 33 the rest of the way <laughs> after those comments. Pretty good. Yeah. And made it to the playoffs and went around into the playoffs. Right. And here we sit two weeks short of a full year, and we're all frustrated again. They just got their asses handed to them by the Texas Rangers. A couple of football scores I saw. Like 14 to 3 or something. Yes, like, yes. There was Lord. a 16 to 6. Oh, man. There was 16. a 12 to 3 all totaled. It was 30 to 9 over the three days. Oh, they got, 30. They got the best staff in baseball. I got to tell you, I mean, these, the starters are unbelievable. You know, what well, the hell happened? What we've been asking over and over again yeah. has been – you know, they've got such a great rotation. Mm -hmm. What happens when the M's bats come alive? When those Mariners bats come alive with that rotation, oh. they're going to go on quite a streak. Here's what we weren't asking that we probably should have been asking, which is <laughs> okay. what happens when the rotation cools off <laughs> right. and the bats continue to struggle? It's going to get ugly. And that's exactly what happened over the weekend in, I guess it's Arlington, Texas. Are they a good team, the Rangers? I haven't looked at the standings. Are they like first place? Are or? you joking? No, no, I honestly haven't. You're joking. I assume, well, if you're going to tell me that they're last place, it's going to hurt even they're more. They're 38 and 20. They're okay, 18 so games a over. Great five. team, then, right now. They are leading the, they're leading the Houston Astros. They're leading the American okay. League West. They have, in some metrics, the best rotation in baseball mm. and the best offense in baseball. Okay. So they're averaging, well, they were averaging six and a half runs a game coming into this series, and they scored 30 over three games. <laughs> so that's now over seven, my guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if the A's would have done this to them, it would have hurt a little more, right? The Texas Rangers over three games, hot shot, yeah. at the plate were 41 for 111. Would you like to do the math, or would you want me to do the math for you? What 41 for 111 over the weekend series against the great Mariners rotation is? Uh, it's probably, let me do the math here. 338. How about 369 Woo! as a team? Pretty good. Pretty good. Or pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, that too. Can I say the same thing as I said a year ago to get them started? Does it work that way or does I, it not work that way? You're, I, I won't really mean it now. I meant it a year ago. No, I know you did, yeah. Yeah, you I, can't say it just to say it. The baseball no. gods will know. I mean, I don't... Do I really think they should fire today Scott Service after they went to the playoffs last year? Do I really think that they should fire today Jerry DePoto after they went to the playoffs last yeah. year? Despite the fact that I think Jerry DePoto did a horseshit job during the offseason. Maybe he was hamstrung by ownership. Maybe he wasn't. And I'm not sure Scott Service is doing a very good job in the dugout the first 60 games into the season. But I don't. 
I'd like to say it just to see if I can get them started, but I'm not going to really mean it, so I don't think it would work. No, the, the baseball gods know what's in your heart, and if you don't really mean it, they're not going to reward you. You got to really mean it in, in order to get those But hot results. shot. Yeah, I know. They're 29 and 30. They've played 59 games. There's still 103 games to go. And they're not 29 and 39 like they were last year. They're one game under 500. Now, the the environment of the American League is different. There are more good teams. You know, they got the Texas Rangers. They got other, other fish to fry. So there's still 103 games to go for the wild card. Yeah. They're seven and a half behind Baltimore, six behind Houston, oh. five and a half behind the Yankees, three and a half behind Toronto, one behind Boston, one behind the Angels. Are those numbers that can't be overcome over 103 games? No, they could. They're going to have to do something similar. Yeah. 63 and and 40, 65 and 37. I don't know. I'm, I'm just throwing They're going to have to get you. red hot like last year. I, and I, 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 Such a shame that they put themselves in this kind of a hole this early. And really, I mean, Kelnick's been a, not a surprise. I guess you could say a surprise, but I think he's been a surprise. Okay, he's been a surprise. Yeah, you really just got rid of Hanniger's offense, who felt like he was hurt all the time. You didn't really lose much from last year, and yet they're they just can't seem to piece together more no. than like three or four in a row. I don't no. understand it because they're so bad offensively. But my point is, why you lost Hanniger and you gained a good Kelnick, like and you gained Teoscar Hernandez to replace Hanniger. Right. So it's like. I don't understand the math. I just I don't understand how that works. Well, I'm going to give you the math. It's, it's not that complicated. Okay. All the other guys are not doing what they did last year. Oh, well, there you I, go. I don't, know yeah. how to, I don't know how to more simply say it to you. Yeah. They counted on Julio hitting the way he hit last year. Now, he's coming alive. Okay. He's been coming alive, and maybe he's still going to get there. They counted on Teoscar Hernandez to be like he was in Toronto. He hasn't been, although he's come alive a little bit. They counted on Suarez. Right, yeah. They counted on Colton Wong to come from Milwaukee and be a, a quality second baseman who could give him a little something offensively. He's been the shits. Okay, Cal Raleigh had a crazy year. Cal Raleigh had a really good year. He yeah. hasn't quite been. So just about every guy yeah. outside of the, the left fielder has been below what they expected production-wise. Gotcha. That's the answer. All right, well, and that's been So fun. you say, well, are they going to come alive? Are they going to come alive and before it's too late? Well, the other question is now the pitching. Is the pitching going to be super spectacular? It certainly wasn't over the, the weekend. You know, everybody around here has been like, we got to get rid of Marco Gonzalez. We we, we got to get rid of Marco. We got to replace Marco Gonzalez as the fifth starter. And I've been for the last month and a half saying that's not the problem. They've won like six of his nine starts. I know he's not very good, but yeah. that has not been the problem. Oh, we got to get rid of Marco. Well, Marco Gonzalez is now on the injured list. And they brought up their top prospect, Brian Wu, to pitch on Saturday against the Rangers. And how did that go? Gotcha, yeah. Two innings, six runs. Careful what you wish for sometimes. Bryce Miller, who we thought was the Pied Piper. How could anybody <laughs> be so good yeah. to start his career? Has just gotten hammered two starts in a row by the Yankees and the Rangers. So now you wonder... What about those two positions in the in the rotation? Yeah. So it's just been super frustrating. You know, last year, I'm not sure how good we thought they were going to be to start the season. And then at 29 and 39, we kind of threw our hands up and I was looking for people to be fired. Yeah. This year, we thought going in, okay, yep. this is the year. Although we all said it, Jerry Depoto and ownership, didn't do enough offensively during the offseason. They stopped short. 
of going to get a big bopper or a couple of more big boppers, and now it's coming back to haunt them. It's just, uh to watch the Texas Rangers, who've been horseshit for years, <laughs> jump up and now be the best team in baseball. How does that happen? To by the watch way? that team just bash your heads against the wall for three straight games, yeah. like I just watched Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I can't take it. Is Pudge Rodriguez still on that team? Talk or? to the players. <laughs> Who the hell's on there? Juan Gonzalez still playing for the Rangers? Kyle Seeger's little brothers. Uh, Remember, they Corey? went out. They went out and they bought players a couple of years ago. Marcus Simeon's been like the best player in the American League. Seager's been great. They've got some new pitchers. They went out and signed some free agents. Okay. And the boom, 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 boom. And it's all working for them. And it's working for them, man. And it's driving me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you and every other Mariner fan. God, just flirting with 500 this whole time. Can't just go like 8 for 10 or 7 out of 9 or put, put something good together. They just can't do it. Got to hit. Yeah. Yeah. You got to hit. <sighs> Three interviews, actually two interviews. One was split in half. The Mike Cameron interview is actually a two-parter. Cammy. So you get the first part as segment one of the interviews and the second part as segment two of the interviews. And then you've promised you're going to listen to author Dave Zirin. Yep. Who wrote the Jim Brown book. And you're going to judge for yourself. Is okay. there more about Jim Brown that you want to consider than all the bad stuff? There And there has been plenty of bad stuff. Yep, yep. There's no question there was bad stuff, okay? Yep. And then the other stuff said. Zeke's Pizza has a new awesome app, which has made everyone's lives who order pizza better. Zeke's Pizza has new locations even outside of Washington State in Idaho. President Dan Black rejoins us on Mitch Unfiltered. Tell us more about Eagle Idaho, Dan. Yeah, Mitch. Eagle's been fun so far. It's opened with a bang down there. It's been fun having some unfiltered listeners check in from down there. <laughs> we, had, we had one guy tell us that we were out of Hop Tropic on Twitter, and so I had to buy him a Hop Tropic the other night, which was fun and he checked back in on twitter so that was it's <laughs> the vast reach of mitch unfiltered is you know making its way down there what you don't realize is is that you weren't even out of hop tropic he was just trying to get a free that's what mitch unfiltered listeners are all about Dan. <laughs> hey, it doesn't surprise me <laughs> it worked <laughs> i count 25 restaurants now two states and i know oregon is next it's amazing how the footprint has grown dan i know i've asked you this before was this the master plan way back when or did some Something changed for you and your partners along the way? Well, it wasn't the master plan. When we started, you know, our founders, Doug and Tom, they basically wanted to live the ultimate Northwest lifestyle. They like to windsurf and ski big mountain powder. And so they realized they were going to have to own their own business to do it. They're food guys. And, you know, at the time there wasn't any really great pizza in Seattle. And so filled the market need and weren't doing much other than wanting to be small business owners. And But it became apparent relatively early on that we kind of embodied the Northwest values and our roots were here and it was pretty clear we were the northwest pizza place pretty early on and so we realized that at the very least could be washington idaho and oregon and it's kind of fun even though that vision's been around for a while to kind of start to have it be realized geographically now and what's the black family ordering now that the weather is gonna change we hope someday and and shine the spotlight on some beer for us yeah you know summer rolls around we tend to get a little bit lighter on the pizza so we end up going and doing some veggie stuff like Super Marg and Quentin Florentino are good. I mean, we always order a lot of Wood Butcher and Cherry Bomb and Puget Pounder, the favorites, but the veggie stuff kind of comes into play. And then the beer mm -hmm. I'm excited for this summer is we're going to do a re-rack of a popular one we did with Fremont Brewing last summer. 
uh, Z side frozen IPA, a nice hoppy, but light beer. That's great for summer. And so not quite sure what date that's going to release, but it'll be a good summer drinker. And that's what I'll be keyed on. You got to download the brand new Zeke's pizza app. It's better than ever. It is simple to get started and to order your pizza, your beer right to your door. We love Zeke's pizza. They've been an incredible sponsor and partner of Mitch unfiltered and they're homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Swing and a fly ball hit into deep center field. Cameron going back to the track, to the wall, makes the leap, and makes the catch. I hate to say it, but it was a grippy-esque catch. Make it Cameron-esque now. What were the most famous trades in Seattle sports history? In my 30 years here, I've got three that come to mind. There was July 31st, 1998, when the Mariners traded Randy Johnson to Houston for Freddie Garcia and Carlos Skien. There was February 20th, 2003, when the Sonics moved Gary Payton to Milwaukee for Ray Allen. But the biggest one, February 10th, 2000, Ken Griffey Jr. to Cincinnati for four players the centerpiece of that package, both literally and figuratively, won us over immediately. His personality, his center field acrobatics, his four-homer game, the inside of his back pocket, the cockeyed hat. Mike Cameron is our next guest on Mitch Unfiltered. How are you, Cammy? Mitch, how you doing, man? I'm doing really, really well. How are you doing? Was the back pocket a thing or did that just happen um, by accident? What what's that deal? Well, well, it was kind of a thing until I got to third base one day uh, after I hit like a triple or got went first to third or something. And Cal Ripken whispered in my ear, he's like, "Dude, you need to tuck your back pocket in." <laughs> and I was like, I was like, okay. I normally would, when I put my gloves out, I never put it pushed it back in there because I wanted it to be like you know fit the pocket fit square yeah. right on my butt. So. I didn't have time to fix it when I was going to hit, and so I just left it out. And then one day, got Rookin Junior, I should say, when I got to third, he was like, "Dude, tuck your back pocket." <laughs> now, now, did, did it have to be Cal Ripken, or could it have been some other third base? Would you have done it if it were any third baseman? No, it was just him. I would have told everybody else to go go somewhere. Else. Okay, but okay. you know, since it was Cal, and and he's like one of the game's best all-time whatever 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 you want to throw under the sun yeah like he fit that description so i could not like say tell him that so obviously from that point on i think i started tucking my back pocket in what about the crooked cap when did that start uh well i'm left-handed so i use my left hand to put on my my hat you know, I've always kind of been like that. I used to think it was straight. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know this. When I was in double A, uh-huh. I got hit in the eye. So my eye didn't dilate in the sun. I guess I, everyone can dispute that since I always wore shades. But the reason why I wore shades because I was very sensitive to light in my right eye. Mm-hmm. But it was just something that I've done since I, I think I, since I was little. When I put my cap on, I finished off with my 
uh, hand that I'm most dominant with, uh, which is my left hand. So what have you been up to all these years? We saw you in the dugout in Boston. We saw you in the TV booth in Atlanta. You've got a big family. You've got kids playing ball. You're still doing it all. Cameron is still doing it all, isn't he? Uh, No, I've kind of slowed down a whole lot. You know, uh, obviously, you know, I got one that's playing pro ball. My daughter, who's graduated from college, we ran track at Ole Miss. And and then my third one, which I'm going to Denver tomorrow to take him to northern Colorado. And then I have a 14-year-old. That, that's the one that probably gives me the most problems. And, uh, you know, she, she plays soccer. So, you know, my third one plays basketball. So he's got a scholarship to go finish up his last couple of years at northern Colorado. So uh, we excited about that. And then I got like a... A 14-year-old, which is my daughter, and yeah. she is the one. So, <laughs> and she plays something. I love it. I want you to go back in time. I was reading up on some things that I don't even remember. Maybe I once knew, maybe I didn't. Is it true, Cammy, that when the White Sox traded you to the Reds, they, mm-hmm. didn't, they didn't even tell you you found out on TV? Yeah, I found out playing winter ball in Dominican on the off day. You know, you'd had a ticket go across the bottom of the CNN screen. That's how <laughs> I found out. And um, that's terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was. You know, obviously, they didn't really owe me that. But you know, obviously, the team who traded for you always calls you or whatever. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough. Dave Molly was my manager down there, and he was in Double A Southern League for the Cincinnati Reds, and he was the one who kind of like. You know, confirmed everything, and then I talked to people, and yeah, so I never heard anything from the White Sox, and so I took I took that to heart. Like I really took it to heart because <laughs> although I made it to the big leagues with the White Sox, they put me through a bunch of shit. I mean, I went through a lot, man. So I took it to heart, and it was a uh, it was a yeah tool of motivation. Yeah. Ever since I you know went away from them, and I tried to man, I was so thankful to get back to the American League to get a chance to play against them because I. When they talked about marking calendars, like I literally <laughs> marked the calendar. I love that. Oh. So, so when I so when I got traded to Seattle, you know, we also so the team was still down in um, Tucson, Arizona. So even the days that I made sure that the days that I probably wasn't scheduled to play, if I had to go to Tucson, I was going to go to Tucson because I wanted them to see my face every time, and I was, it was business. It was business. <laughs> How about when you were traded from? The Reds to the Mariners. Do you remember that day? Who told you and what did you feel like? You know, that, that trade actually was uh, something that was kind of unexpected but expected because you just kind of put two and two, to two together. Everybody was talking about Pogi Reese, and he was been the main cog in the trade. But I'm like, well, who the hell is going to play center field? <laughs> like, I'm playing center field here. So you, we're talking about getting the man to come to Cincinnati. So obviously – I don't know if I was a throw-in or whatever it was, but um, obviously I wasn't because I would have to, to replace Griffey. The only thing that I could say was I wasn't putting the gaudy numbers that he put up when he was in Seattle, but I kind of held my own, mm-hmm. you know, like, a, you know, I wasn't hitting 50, but I was hitting 20, but I was still in 35. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I, <laughs> and and I felt like, you know, as great as he was, I felt like I was gifted enough to play center field oh. as Ken Griffey Jr. I just had, I just had had that notoriety that he had. I'm not even gonna lie. I don't even know. I don't even know. I should have been having a mental skills coach. I didn't have a mental skills coach uh, when I got to Seattle. 
I didn't know what to expect. I was nervous. Yeah. We're talking about February 10th, so we're talking about five days before spring training. So I have no idea. I just did it. I know I was on a good team. I know I was, um, you know, with a good manager, although the only thing I ever saw him doing was tossing Gatorade coolers. <laughs> but I knew I was in a good situation. I knew I was in a good situation, especially more than over uh, being on a good team yeah. more than anything. But how nerve-wracking was it, Cammy, to run out to center field at Safeco Field for the first time knowing that that's where number 24 made his hay? Well, I kind of made peace with that. You know, the good thing is we had two exhibition games that first year. Obviously, Seiko was just opening up that that summer of 99, so I got a chance to play the first full season in it. Okay. It was nerve-wracking, man. I'm not even going to lie. You know, like, it was just a shift, a whole change of, you know, my life and direction and everything and under the microscope of replacing a guy because of the fans. I think baseball-wise, people knew that I could, you know, play out there, whatever it may be. Jay Benner was a very big help. Uh, Lou was, like, equally helpful because Lou was like, hey, you come into a you know a pretty good decent lineup, so you, you don't have to worry about anything, and we're gonna teach you how to get better. And that was by far the best manager I ever had right. because, dude, I guess he understood what I was going under on the twenty you know a twenty six year old guy, and yeah, he kind of understood that, and he allowed me to play. I, he brought people around me that helped me out: Ricky Henderson, Mark McLemore, A Rod, John Olerud, uh Dan Wilson. And, you know, just have, have – and Stan Javier. So, to have those, you know, older veterans around to, you know, continue the growth and understanding of me developing into what I was supposed to become, these guys were a very big part of helping in that, in but, that stage. But, Cammy, what I remember is how in love the fans were with you. And that must have felt so good. All the great catches, all the big hits. Do you remember, like, a moment – I don't remember exactly the catch, but there seemed to be a moment where you like jog back from center field and the place went crazy. They wanted a curtain call and you had to know right then and there, oh my God, these guys are going to love me just as much as they love Ken Griffey Jr. Yeah. You know, we played that first series against Boston, um, against Nomar now, and I got my first home run, I think, during that series. Uh-huh. Um, but playing that second series against the New York Yankees and you know, I guess my signature catch was going over the wall and bringing back Derek Jeter's own run. Oh, and uh, uh, that was kind of like the, the play. And it happened so early in the season, it gave everyone a chance to just kind of like exhale. Yeah. It allowed everyone to kind of relax and say, hey. The kid can play. Okay. Yeah. We got somebody that can play out here who knows how to do this. I knew that already, but, you know, you got to still got to convince the people that you can do it. Right. Obviously. Uh, but yeah, like that was just the start, man. And, uh, it kind of allowed me to relax and settle in as a player and, uh, just kind of, you know, grow in the Northwest area pretty much, you know, under the, the, the microscope of, you know, being traded for King Griffey Jr., which arguably was the best player amongst him and Barry Bonds at that particular time. Cammy, I'm going to give you three. You got to rank them one to three. All right. Mm-hmm. The Jeter catch. That you just mentioned. The Tory Hunter catch, which was classic. Mm-hmm. And the Carlos Lee. Talk about getting the White Sox. 
The Carlos Lee catch. I'm not going to tell you what my favorite was until after you rank them one to three. Carlos Lee line drive, Torrey Hunter over the wall, and then laughing at him as you ran back, and Jeter. Rank them one to three. Well, I'm going to go with the Jeter catch because that that allowed the fans to really kind of like, ah, okay moment. (laughs) Like, okay, we we got someone here. The Carlos Lee catch was in 2001, I think. And so that was just kind of a feature of all the things that transpired. It was against the White Sox, once again, so that goes way up on the list anytime <laughs> I did anything against the White Sox. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, it was just gritty enough, you know, in the grace that I felt like I played with in the outfield, I'm diving on a warning track right by the wall. So that was just like, I mean, just pure grit and determination that, look, I'm still – going to hurt you guys in any way, shape, fashion, form as I can. And it's going to be a nightmare for you guys every time you see me. And the Torrey Hunter thing was just like, you know, that's against my counterpart. So yeah. we always say a thief getting robbed. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I should say another thief getting, getting robbed. robbed. And, yeah, yeah. You know, so, and then, you know, anytime you does anything great with Jamie Moore on the mound, he's going to make sure that, you know, everyone knows that, you know, you are part of that, you know, because, you know, saving runs, which in that case would have been two or three runs, uh, helping Jamie Morier get a, you know, you know, <laughs> take another step to get another victory is always a blessing, man. But that was a tough play. I made another play like that too against Bernie Williams in the playoffs. That was crazy. Like I just, I know I remember that one yeah. because it was in the playoffs yeah. and Dave Justice, I almost got Dave Justice out at first base. That was Crazy, crazy, because that saved at least two runs in the playoffs, and we needed every run we could get against the New York Yankees. You know, just the fact that, uh, you know, I was able to, you know, have some of these memories, man. I'm, you know, I'm just – and do it in Seattle and yeah. the way the people embraced me still throughout the years. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to bring so much joy to so many people with different faces, and I was there to play. Uh, in the best years of uh, of winning, although we didn't win no chips – you know, we didn't get to the World Series, but in the best years of winning, uh, considering you lose Randy Johnson, Ken Griffey Jr., and Alex Rodriguez, to lose those three pieces and, and we still be able to continue to hold it together and be at the top of the, the upper echelon in the American League. Obviously, Eddie Ichiro helped a lot of that, but, you know, being able to be a part of that man is uh, still holds very true and dear to my heart. So, Cammy, you just mentioned Ichiro. That was my next question. Had you ever heard of him before? When did you start hearing about him? And when you saw him for the first time, do you remember what you were thinking? Well, people have been talking about him the year before. Obviously, he came and had spring training with Seattle a couple years before. But once they started talking about him, I started like watching YouTube stuff on him and what he was doing in Japan. And, well, okay. <laughs> uh, he, he's, he can... He can do a lot of different things. And then he played outfield. And I could think about, like, like the dude is cat quick. So he plays center field in Japan. Uh, he's got a great arm. It's only going to make us that much better, you know, in the field. But when he got over here, man, once he made the adjustment, like in spring training on every day, man, it was just only the sky's the limit. I've never seen him struggle, to be honest with you. I've never seen him struggle. He was a baseball's, baseball's player. Like, he bunted, he ran, he could throw, he could hit. He was so fundamentally sound. And he understood how to play the game and his love for the game and the way he nurtured himself and his his equipment and his game. 
is uncanny, man. There's no other way of looking at it. The guy changed. He was Michael Jackson. I mean, he was Michael Jackson in baseball. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, having a guy like that is something special in itself. Mike, <laughs> 116 wins in 2001. 116 wins. You go for 25 homers, 110 RBIs, 34 stolen bases. We get the all-star game. Here in Seattle, you're a part of that. I see you had three at batch, even had a double in the All-Star game off of John Lieber in uh, in 2001. Yeah. What an unbelievable year. We had the horrific 9-11. The, the play was stopped. And then you guys fall short of going to the World Series. That year, there was so much going on that year. Yeah. Um, first and foremost, uh, the remarkable start that we had to the season. We gelled very, very soon and very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we played very well. Uh, we were clicking on all cylinders from, I think, April 1st on in. Partly because we knew that the Oakland A's were right they were right on our tails uh, in the division at that time. You know, we won 116 games that year. I think they won 100. So, you know, it just goes to show, like, how competitive it was. And then, obviously – Anaheim, you know, starting to put things together. They were tough. They were a tough team. But uh, we got out the gate very well, and we didn't slow down, and we had the luxury of the the great ace of each row and, you know, the unknown of him and what he was able to bring on a daily basis. And everyone else just kind of like just slotted in, man. It was just smooth running. And we, Lou was a great managing situation for a team like that, a veteran lace team with a couple sprinkle with a couple of young guys in there. But for the most part, we were veteran wise and we had just lost to the Yankees in the ALCS uh, the year before and then losing A-Rod but replacing him with a more a different dynamic player in each row and bringing in Brett Boone. Mm-hmm. Um, man, we just we got out to a blistering start, bro, and it didn't slow down. The confidence was through the roof very, very quickly. We didn't have any guys that were, like, really struggling in those first two months, so that allowed us to kind of have a, a more of a balance. And our pitching was – Starting staff wasn't the strongest, like in a sense that you normally, you know, power pitchers or whatever. Um, but we had a very good starting staff, but we also had a very good bullpen. And uh, Kyle Sasaki in the back end of it with Jeff Nelson and also Arthur Rose, you know, and then, you know, and the sprinkle in the middle of that, Ryan Franklin and uh, a few other guys, man, uh, Shigatoshi Hashigawa. Uh, so we had like some pieces that could do different things, which is uh, very unique. But getting to the point of to the All-Star game, you know, obviously it's my one and only and it being in Seattle. I just remember being in, in L.A. and I had played ahead of a very good season. and I just said that I'll never make an All-Star team unless I hit like 330 in the first half. <laughs> you know, because I still was dealing with Bernie Williams. You know, you still you're dealing with, you know, Tor Hunter, who's a fan favorite, and then you're dealing with uh, Jim Edmonds. Well, Jim Edmonds, I think, had went to St. Louis by this time. But, you know, for some reason, well, it's, just, it's just tough to make it, man. You know, luckily enough, I did enough damage in the year past against – and I probably did a, enough defensively mm-hmm. uh, to convince Joe Torrey to allow me to be on that team. I found out two days before the All-Star break was going to go into effect uh, when we were down in L.A. because my buddy, ironically – the guy who kind of reshaped and redesigned my 
training thought process and training thoughts when I got to Cincinnati. He got hurt, and I, w- I was able to replace him. And, I mean, what better place to be able to have your first All-Star game than to be at home under the, the circumstances that we were so good. We were so good that year. I mean, we blowing out everyone. We were winning. We didn't lose a series for, I think, like the end of the year <laughs> to be recognized on that stage uh, and be considered one of the best players. Man, it's just special, especially gratifying yeah. to be amongst the elite. Yeah. Getting back home in Seattle, almost like being a kid in a candy store and not me not having to move my locker I'm having an all-star jersey in my locker and then walking outside and see my name, you know, mostly all the names were up on banners on the, uh, around the, around the stadium. And mine was on like a bed sheet or something like that. And I still was equally excited. I'm not even gonna lie. I'm not even gonna lie. Still more with Cammy coming up like the disappointing end of the 2001 season after 116 wins. And wait till you hear his story about the four-home run game in Chicago against the White Sox. It's been a while since my friend and Mitch Unfiltered partner John Waterstrat joined us, and there's good reason. He's been busy, an exciting major facelift to some of the fireside showrooms. How are you, J-Dub? I'm doing great, Mitch. Thanks for having me back. And yes, it, it has been busy, and we're excited to unveil some new, cool new projects. We have a new sales director that came along, and he's been putting his footprint on the showrooms, and we're excited about what he's doing. We're going to put some new fireplaces you've never seen before, and then we're redoing our whole outdoor kitchen area. Wow. The fantastic flagship Bellevue location was already beautiful, so I can't wait to drop by and see it. So what's the rumor about some big project you're coming up, some enormous fireplace that you guys are ready to install. Yes, our commercial department's doing a fantastic job. And as we've talked about before, we can do almost anything in fireplaces and custom fireplaces are getting bigger and bigger. And we're hoping to uh, unveil the one of the largest fireplaces in North America. It's going to be pretty exciting stuff. How big? Roughly 25 feet. And you're not going to tell us where it is, but we'll be able to see it sometime? And we'll be able to see it and we'll talk about it. Yeah, it'll be exciting. Oh, that's yeah. going to be fun so now that we've reached let's call it the off season for fireplace use it's actually you and i talk about this one of the better times of the year to start the process of redoing the fireplaces in your home or like you guys did for us an outdoor unit yes i mean when the weather gets nice out there things go a little bit faster so we're not fighting the weather whether we have to extract a fireplace put a new one in and then again outside as well when you're out there we can get something done pretty quickly for you right now and so when you're looking at the off season you have a schedule and and you want to get something done quickly it's the best time to do it yeah whether it's fireplaces or garage doors begin your search at firesidehomesolutions.com i'll bet you'll end your search there too it's sponsors like john and fireside that make our shows and growing guest lists possible fireside home solutions and firesidehomesolutions.com Pitches hit to deep center field. Back goes Lofton to the track, to the wall. Cameron has done it. My, oh my, Mike Cameron becomes only the fifth man in Major League history to hit four home runs in four consecutive events. All right, so answer me this. You go through that season, you win 116. You get to the American League Championship Series, and it ends there. 
How, mm-hmm. how did you feel? How did the team feel? Can you remember the flight back, the disappointment of getting knocked out after an incredible season? It was hard, man, because we were supposed to go to the World Series and win it all that year. It was hard. <sighs> Mitch, it was just hard. Like, it was hard to, to take. It was hard to accept. We didn't play well. The hardest thing is, um, man, like Cleveland took a lot. Cleveland was really, really good in that first short series. Yep. I don't think that people realize, like Cleveland was good. Like they were really good. Their offense was unbelievable. And they had power pitching with CeCe and um, Bartolo, power right-handed guy. Yeah. We struggled against them. They were very, very, very good. They probably been the best, second best offensive team in the league that year. You know, we, we that took a lot out of us, and then we ran into the buzz zone of the the number one starters in uh, New York City, and then you know, obviously, them being veteran savvy and just understanding that we know how to win, we know how to win in these short these series where everything's on the line, and so it's just different. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just different. We just didn't play well against them. Obviously, you know, nine eleven. Had a very big part of that where it just kind of took the steam out of what we were doing. You know, not to make no excuses, I can only chalk it up that we just didn't play well. Uh, we didn't hit well enough to compete with some of that elite pitching that they had uh, to give our guys a chance to be successful, man. So, yeah, it was a shock. We got beat four to one, I think four yeah, to two. I think four to one, I think it was. Yeah, four to yeah, one. Yeah, like you said, that was, that was yeah, that was tough. Yeah, that was tough, yeah, bro. Yeah. Before you go. You don't think I'm letting you out of here without May 2nd, 2002. It all comes full circle, doesn't it, Cammy? It all comes full yeah. circle in Chicago against the White Sox. You and Boone go back-to-back twice in the first inning. That hasn't happened ever since, I don't think. You've got... Yeah. Four home runs in the first five innings. You get hit by a pitch in the seventh. And then in the ninth, you had a shot. You had a shot. You could have been the only one standing with five. What do you remember about that night? (laughs) So I'm going to go backwards to forward. Okay. So I would have had five homers if it wasn't been cold there. At least had a better chance. (laughs) But me and Booney had a bet, man. So I was losing the bet still. When I had four home runs, I was still losing the bet. <laughs> what? So, yeah, I was. Because we counted RBIs more importantly oh. than the extra homers. Yeah. And he had like a two couple two-run homers or whatever. So, All yours were solo um, shots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why. Man, I don't know why just that ball didn't go. I didn't hit it high enough. I didn't get enough, quote-unquote, launch angle on it so but I hit a line drive to right field with the bases loaded I was just be able to put a good swing on the ball I just didn't elevate it enough and my man Jeff Leifer probably a step and a half in front of the warning track caught it right up above the fence and you know so that was the kind of like the end of that I I wanted it at that point (laughs) the first four was just like oh well you know I just trying to put a good swing on but at that fifth when I wanted it I had a chance to do it I put myself in a position to do it and I uh, just didn't get it elevated enough. But that day uh, was very cold once the sun went down there. And the four-homer game, man, the, the, the other three was just a byproduct of me being blessed to get the ball up in the air three other times. I even hit one foul. So that was crazy in itself. <clears throat> you know, get a ball get a ball up in the air, you know, get like 
some balls up in the air like that. That whole day was crazy, unique in a sense. Because I even robbed a Grand Slam that day. Yeah, you did, Maglio or Dunnages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, you know, just just there was so much right about that day. I wasn't looking for it to be a historic day. I was just looking to do damage as I always do against Chicago White Sox. And so <laughs> it, it brought on an ultra focus. It brought on an ultra focus anytime I played against them. You know, my old manager, Derek, Jerry Mayo, who I respect greatly, I call him the Messiah. Yeah, man. It's just when I, when I went to Chicago, I felt like I was at home in another uniform. Uh-huh. Man, y'all gave up on me too quick. And I'm going to show you the guy that you got in center field can't play with me. He ain't got nothing on me. <laughs> And that's the way I felt, and that's really the way I played, and and so it brought like that ultra focus, that sensitive focus, to doing that. If I was to like look up, we was to look at my numbers right now. If I can go off playing the White Sox the whole time, I'd probably be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> very spoken, very highly. I'm probably going to play in the Hall of Fame. By the way, Cammy, you, know? you were you were two for your last 19 before that game. Yeah, so that's another thing I knew. Like it didn't matter. It didn't matter if I was struggling or whatever it was, or how it was going. When I played against the White Sox, I was going to be ready to play. I made that statement and that bet with myself the day, my last day playing in winter ball, and I knew I got traded. I said, you guys going to have to see me soon. You think this guy's going to be better than me? No chance. <laughs> there was no other guy that maybe Aaron Rowan towards the end. But still, he wasn't doing no 25-35. Nobody was doing that. No 2030s. You were. No, no. Nobody was doing that with the White Sox. You were. You were doing it for the Mariners. Yeah. Hey, so. Exactly. So. And I played in, I played in our ballpark. Yeah, you did. So obviously it's gotten better, but yeah. So me and Booney both were struggling. So he hated, he hated the fact that he had to hit second in front of me, you know, (laughs) going into, uh, Lou always flip flopped the lineup a little bit. And, uh, we flip flopped it a little bit to put him in front of me and, and me hitting third since we Edgar wasn't even playing. Edgar was hurt. Yeah. Right at the end of April, he got hurt. So we needed to step up. We were going to Chicago, New York, and somewhere else, and then coming back home. I know there's a lot that we talk about with these things that go on on the baseball field, but the community that I lived in in Rose Hill, man, we got back from New York City. I lived in uh, Rose Hill up in, um, which is right up above um, Bellevue. Mm-hmm. I remember turning down my street, and when I turned down my street, there were signs lined up oh all God. the way down. Really? Oh, that's yeah, awesome. like that's it, awesome. because the people really never bothered me, you know. Like they just they treated me like I was a part of the community. The signs that the people put up all the way down from the street that you turn on to get to my house, man, it was like so. It was so gratifying because it's like, man, we're so proud of you. Like I was just so grateful. The one thing about I always did was like take a, each moment and really I felt like grounded enough to understand that, you know, I was just a part of something very special that was going on in Seattle. And it just so happened to be I played for the Seattle Mariners and the community kind of embraced me. And that's the reason why I felt like I had no other reason other than to retire with Seattle. I felt like I should have been there alone in Seattle. Yeah, I want to ask uh, you about that. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. I want to ask okay, you about that. Okay. So um, okay. after the three season, your mm-hmm. fourth year, mm-hmm. they didn't re-sign you and you went off to, to play somewhere else. They didn't offer you salary arbitration. What happened? What's the uh, what's the backstory uh, to that? What happened? Well, Pat Gillick was obviously moving on or he was retiring or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. 
everyone in Seattle know I wanted to stay. They knew I was a free agent. I don't know how prominent I was as far as free agency or whatever I was, like number two, three, or whatever. I know I was behind Vladimir Guerrero and a, maybe another guy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go anywhere. I had a kid there. I just had a kid in 2001 there. They knew how much I wanted to be over there, but, you know, I was entering my age 30 season at the time. They got Bill Bavese. Bill Bavese never called me. They never offered me salary arbitration. They never offered me a contract. Wow. Um, they say we love you. They Why? say you, I don't know. I guess they want to get, move on, get younger. I don't know. I have no idea. I still haven't found out yet. <laughs> you know, obviously Pat Gillett was gone, but Lee Pelicutis was there and, um, you know, a few other guys, but yeah, it hurt. It hurt because I knew that if anyone should understood what type of person and player I was and what I meant to that community, considering the circumstances of how I came there and how I was able to overcome a lot of that, I thought I should be able to fit right in with everything else and, you know, at least another three, four seasons there, if nothing else. But it didn't work out that way. Bob Mevin was great. You know, he was great for me after Lou left and everything. And I know the team was getting a little bit older, but I wasn't old. I just started getting good. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, I just felt like Seattle was my second home. Me being a part of the fabric of that community out there and, and just not to get anything out of it other than what it was, was it hurt. It was disastrous. What was it like to come back? I didn't get a chance to come back until... Couple my years second later. year, yeah, yeah, being in New York, and I was hurt. I had gotten hurt. Uh, my knee was blowed up, but I did get a chance to come back in 2005. And man, it just felt gratifying. And every time that I did get a chance to come back there, I always tried to. I took a little bit of, I maybe a little bit of the edge that I had in Chicago, and say, okay. You think these guys are can play with me? I'm going to show you right now. So, <laughs> uh, I always kind of took that a little bit of an edge. and You know, especially when I got a chance to play in San Diego, we came there, we faced you guys twice, a couple times. So, you know, it was kind of good to come back to Seattle, man. It's always home, man. And then the people there have always treated me with nothing but kindness and uh, respect. You know, I mean, obviously being a, a fanatic, you know, people are going to have their certain feelings about everything and, I didn't really care about that because I knew how great I was, what I meant to the community, the different things that I did from a community relations department, you know, being a member of the first state uh, youth golf deal, just so many other different things that I did there, you know, for the community and being a part of that. You know, I just feel so grateful to be, to be able to have a bit of a special part of all those things. And maybe at least one more year, I could have been considered to get a blue coat. You know, if I had <laughs> one more year, you know, well, you got to have five years. Though, yeah, so, you yeah. know, that's, that's just, that's the way it is. Uh, maybe be considered to have, uh, to be in that little I'll man in the Hall blue. of Fame. But... I'll, I'll send you a blue <laughs> I'll send you a blue <laughs> We love you, Cammy. Yeah. 17 years I appreciate it. in the big leagues. Nearly 300 home runs, nearly 300 stolen bases. The man could do it all out in the field. We loved him the moment he stepped onto the Safeco field for the first time, and we still love him all these years later. Thank you. Thank you to finally catch up with me, and all the best to you and your family. Let's do it again sometime soon. Okay, Cammie? Anytime, Mitch. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you for the opportunity. 
Knicks. My man, Jay Flo, Jordan Flowers. He runs the Woodenville office of Cross Country Mortgage. He's a jet setter, too. Legoland with the family. A Cavaliers game in Cleveland with Cross Country Mortgage. I hope you don't forget your mediocre friends here in Seattle, Jordan. Never, never. <laughs> All the jet setting, it's just puffery, Mitch. Just puffery. Oh, very good, Jordan. <laughs> very good. Danny O'Neill will be very impressed. Good time to be a buyer in the Pacific Northwest. True or false? Absolutely true. Great time to be a buyer right now. Uh, buyers are not having to get into a lot of multiple offer situations and escalate like they were a year ago. Huh? They're coming to reasonable agreements with sellers, not having to waive all their conditions just to get considered. And they're able to get a lot of credits to help pay for closing costs or even take advantage of helping buy that rate down. And last week, I understand you locked in a buyer with an interest rate, at least at the outset in the threes. People listening to this are going to say that's not humanly possible. True or false, Jordan Flowers, and how? True. So as referenced in the past, we are taking advantage of these temporary buy-downs in the market. What we're doing is taking that seller credit and getting enough to offer the ability to temporarily buy down an interest rate from, say, the start rates are in the mid-sixes, upper sixes, and get them starting at 3% the first year and elevates to 4 and then 5 and then the note rate. But within those first year or two with rates will come down, they then can refinance into that long-term secured fixed rate. All right. So what am I paying attention to if I'm a buyer or seller? What numbers as they come out over the next weeks and months? Yeah. Uh, two key markers to be watching is the CPI numbers coming out because the last year's CPI number will fall off, which it was a monster in March last year. If we get a lower reading this year, that will then be indicating inflation is coming down, which will be great for long-term mortgage-backed securities. And then keep an eye on the 10-year treasury. If we can get that 10-year treasury number down to about 3.2, 3.25, it's going to be an excellent time for anybody that has purchased in the last year to look to refinance and lower that interest rate as well. And if you're looking to refinance, if you're looking to lower that interest rate as well as he says, you're going to call first Jordan Flowers and his team at Cross Country Mortgage. Phone number? 425-890-2957. Jordan Flowers, the Woodenville Office of Cross Country Mortgage. Great, great partner of Mitch Unfiltered. Unfiltered. Early in the first quarter, Milt Plum appears trapped, retreats almost to the goal line, and fires a pass to Jim Brown. Five Bears have a good shot at him, and even this desperation dive fails to stop him. A couple of weeks ago, one of the greatest players in NFL history, by just about any metric, passed away. Jim Brown, more than 12,000 yards in, what, an eight or nine year NFL career. In fact... He retired after winning the MVP for the third time, but Jim Brown's legacy, much more nuanced and complicated, and that's why we've called upon Dave Zirin, who wrote the 2018 book, Jim Brown, The Last Man Standing. How are you, Dave? Thanks for being on. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I saw where you spent a week or so with Jim Brown late in his life, but let's go back to as you wrote the book and you did this deep dive into his life. Did you find yourself liking Jim Brown more and more or less and less as you found out more about him? That is a very deep and complex question. Uh, as I dove into it, 
I started thinking of this phrase that I heard from the writer Howard Bryant about what it means to be heroic but not be a hero. Uh, as I looked more and more into Jim Brown's life, I saw many heroic actions. I also, in looking at his childhood, started to feel like I understood the side of his personality that was, in fact, violent, violent towards men, particularly violent towards women, particularly violent towards young women, if you just go by people who brought charges right. forward against him. And it was a reminder to me of two things. Uh, the first is that it's so important that we not excuse that behavior, but it's also so important that we be brave enough to try to explain it. Uh, otherwise, we're always just going to be caught in these kinds of cycles of violence. And you know that old expression, hurt people hurt people. And if we don't deal with that hurt, we're, we're condemning ourselves to more of this. I mean, that came across to me very clearly. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, again, it's not to excuse it. And in his life, I just felt like I found enough lessons, whether it was in his athletic activity or his political activity, to say, you know, this is a life that really does demand a level of analysis uh, because there it, it is rich with lessons. And it's so striking to me because to me, his life has far more concrete political lessons than say someone like Muhammad Ali, who is my absolute <laughs> uh, hero and in the center of a lot of the writing I've done over the years. Mm -hmm. But Muhammad Ali, th there are dozens of books about Muhammad Ali. And I mean, people can just go to Amazon and check it out. I wrote the second ever biography of Jim Brown. Okay. And when I first wanted to do it, I, I assumed there would be, you know, dozens like with Ali. And it just to me speaks to the fact that he's always been somebody who's not just kept people at arm's length, but people have chosen to be at arm's length from him. The incidents and allegations, and there were many, and I'm starting there, and then we'll come back to the athleticism and all the incredible things that he accomplished both on and off the field. But there was 9, 10, 11 allegations, charges. It left a lot of people with the overriding opinion that Jim Brown was a bad guy. Is that just too simplistic? Uh, it is. Wow. What, what, what a, the way you phrase that is tough because it all depends on what people's opinions are. Like if you are bad in terms of your interpersonal relationships, does that mean that not only are you an awful person in life, but also should you actually be canceled as a personality? Like, should this be someone who, and I've had people, I'm saying this because I had people say this to me when the book came out. I had a very different experience than I thought I have. I knew the book would draw some haters, but my opinion going in, and I, I just found this really interesting, was that a lot of people who were aligned with his version of what he called green power, which was like black nationalism mixed with a, a firm belief in capitalist economics, that was Jim Brown's politics. I, I thought they would be mad at me for talking about the toxic Jim Brown and I thought people who were thinking that they were aligning with women who had been victimized by violence in their lives, survivors, if you will, I assumed they would hate the book because they would think it was kind of a glorification sure, sure. of Jim Brown. And I did get that from both sides. And I mm -hmm. went in with open eyes about that. But what really surprised me, and I think this starts to answer your question, is that a lot of people who are political, who you would think would ally with Jim Brown, got in touch with me and they were more 
quizzical and kind of disappointed in me hmm. saying, why would you spend years writing about this guy? You know, of all the people who've contributed so much, this is someone who actually brought a cloud to the kind of work that we take so seriously. Right. Because of the of the violence against women, because of the lack of any kind of repentance or acknowledgement, which is frankly a bigger part of this to me, or as big a part than the violence itself, you know, this, this inability to own it. And the other part that I think really strikes people about Brown is you mentioned the allegations. I mean, I really think people would look at those allegations differently if, say, he had a stormy life in his 20s and then sort of aged out of it. And I'm not saying that George Foreman was ever accused of anything, but like George Foreman style, do you know how he got cuddlier in old age? Of course, of course. The rest of it. I mean, Jim Brown denied himself that one because he's the least cuddly person in the world. Right. That's just a fact. (laughs) I met the man. He scared the heck out of me. He was almost 80. The other part is the breadth of the allegations, Mitch, is the first one that was public against him was in 1965. The last one that was public against him was in 1999. Incredible. That's a hell of a, an expanse years. of one's life. Yeah. 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 To have those, to have direct allegations did, brought against you. Did I read that he once went to jail? He was given an option of going to court mandated domestic violence class and he turned it down and, and, and in turn went to jail instead. Is that right? Yeah, let me explain that because like most Jim Brown stories, it takes a little bit of uh, of explanation. And as a background, let me just say this. You, you know that expression, you might be paranoid, but they're still out to get you or yeah, words to that effect. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, <laughs> or just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get yeah, you. Yeah. Jim Brown, the, he, it's not like he never responded publicly to these allegations uh, of violence against women, but they were always the, the responses were always of the type of, you know, I'm a strong, political, powerful person in the black community, and they are trying to tear me down. This is about society trying to tear me down. Yeah. And I researched these cases really deeply. And there absolutely were people trying to tear him down. And using the opportunity of these allegations to try to tear him down, that was real. But what was also real is that he was doing this kind of behavior at the same time. Like both things were going on, were true. Yeah. Yeah. And you see this in the 1999 case that, that, that you referenced. First of all, the timing of Jim Brown's uh, experience with, with law in 1999, his arrest, could not have been worse for him because – Spike Lee had just put out this documentary about him called Jim Brown All-American, which was meant to be that kind of coda on a life well-lived. Well, there were youthful transgressions, but, you know, look at all he's accomplished. You know, that was basically the thrust of the film was was a state of genuflection uh, about Brown. As that film comes out, here's what happens. Uh, Jim Brown is challenged by his young wife, uh, at the time, Monique Brown, they got in some sort of verbal confrontation. And his response to that was to go to the garage and hit her car over and over again with some sort of object. And in his mind, he was trying to deal with the anger without being violent. She called the police. Police came. She said she wished she hadn't called the police in front of the police. She tried to stop it, uh, him being arrested, but he was. And then the judge 
who was absolutely brutal towards him in the trial itself, the judge said, okay, well, you can pick up garbage by the side of the road. And he chose instead to say, well, I'll take the prison sentence. Uh And then in prison, he went on a hunger strike. Uh And because he said the entire thing was about breaking him down, breaking down. Okay. And it, it, for him, it was all coached in this idea of, of, of manhood and particularly black manhood. Like this is about, and he was explicit about this, a female judge, like he was very misogynistic in his comments about the judge and saying that it was her effort to try to tear him down. So like most things with Jim Brown, it's this story that you kind of have to untangle to get at the root of it. Because like we could even talk about many of his instances of abuse and talk about how the people who were on the receiving end of that abuse ended up staying connected with him for years after. They always recanted just Mm -hmm. about every single time they recanted their story after the fact. And this is where we get to the other interesting complication of how we talk about this is that Jim Brown would always say, you know, I'm being railroaded, et cetera. But there's a and there is some truth to that, particularly in the LAPD. There are people who are very anti Jim Brown because of the work he did with gangs. Right. But Jim Brown also had a lot of friends on the LAPD. And Hollywood, as I'm sure you and listeners well know, is an industry and a city built on the currency of fame. And Jim Brown was nothing if not famous. And if you don't think people of fame are looked out for in the legal system of Los Angeles, well, then I do have this bridge bridge in my hometown of Brooklyn to sell you. So, so, so all of, so those factors were are both working in yeah. all the cases yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's a tangled web, but let me tell you what wasn't a tangled web. And that was his athleticism and his mm-hmm. brilliance in everything that he touched. He was a, Uh, obviously a star football player. I went to Syracuse in the late 80s, and if I had a nickel for every time somebody said to me, Mitch, you should have seen him on the lacrosse field if you think he was a good football player. If I had a nickel for every time somebody told me that in 1985 and 86, he was a basketball player. He was a lacrosse star. He was a track star. There was nothing that he did where he wasn't the best out there. Was he the best athlete of the 20th century. I asked Jim Brown that very question, and he said, of course it was Jim Thorpe. I asked, then I qualified it and said, well, what about team sport athletes? And he said, of course it's Bill Russell, who was also his good buddy. Right. Uh, But he said, if the whole point of team sports is championships, then Russell must be considered the best. Sure, And I said to Jim Brown, and I think this was the only time I actually really challenged him to his face, because like I said, (laughs) a very intimidating guy. As I said to him, I said, sir, you are the best athlete of the 20th century because nobody else is in the conversation as best ever in two different sports. And that's football and lacrosse. People still debate Jim Brown versus I'm sure somebody you're very famous with, uh, familiar with Gary Gate. Yeah. And, And it's like those those debates among the old timers are very real. And I always go to Jim Brown and lacrosse because, you know, they changed the rules because of Jim Brown. Yes, and that's yeah. usually reserved for the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's and Wilt Chamberlain's of the world. You know, people who are bigger than the sport yeah. Yeah. in terms of their skill sets. So and Jim Brown wasn't seven feet tall. He was doing it shaped like every oh, bigger for sure and in better shape for sure. But, you know, at 6'2", 230, it's not like he was showing up like Victor Wembanyama or anything. <laughs> so so, so he, he was something else. And you mentioned the track and field just to put a little bit of uh, 
paint on that. Jim Brown entered a decathlon without training, an NCAA decathlon without training. And think about the events of the decathlon. And he came in fifth. And he did so well without training that uh, he was approached by the U.S. Olympic Committee about leaving football for a time and doing formal training for the 56 Olympics Mm -hmm. in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. He was offered a contract to fight for the heavyweight boxing title. Casey Stengel wrote him a letter asking him to join the Yankees. I mean, it was just like people wanted to be around him. You mentioned hoops. That was very real for him. And then you mentioned the NFL at the start of the broadcast. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the most impressive number of his entire career was, of course, zero. And that's the number of games he missed, which is remarkable Mm. when you consider in his time just how violent the game was, particularly at the bottom of a football pile and what was allowed. But also when you consider that he was part of 60% of the Cleveland Browns offensive plays, Incredible, an an unbelievable level of punishment. And Mm, mm. he, and yet, you know, I remember talking to somebody in the NFL players association, this was about 10 years ago. And they, they said to me, you know, we have an expression around here that the only person to walk instead of limp away from the NFL is Jimmy Brown. Did his opponents fear him professionally? And what kind of a team did his teammates, were his teammates scared of him? Were his coaches scared of him? (laughs) What a great way to phrase it. Um, First of all, I would make the case that when we talk about the NFL, uh, the intimidators, 99% of the time, if we want to talk about furious intimidators who scare people we're talking about defenders that's who we're talking about my favorite one growing up is actually in your hometown uh, a guy by the name of kenny easley who uh when I, I i would go out of my way to watch seahawks games growing up because he was somebody you were scared of and you, you were attracted to that as sure. a football fan sure. jim brown to me is the only person who rises to the level of intimidator in NFL history, like someone you feared physically, not an intimidator like the way Joe Montana, two minutes to go, you're scared because of what do you know he's going to do. I'm talking intimidator, Jim Brown. That's the list to me. And his genius, oh, oh God, and I have stories in the book too about what it was like to be hit by him as a linebacker and the, what people <laughs> describe is just, is is car accident style sure, stuff. Sure. I mean, he was just that strong. Yeah. And if if you were a big guy too, he was just that fast to get around you. Uh, the footage is not great. There's not a lot of it, but I do recommend people go to YouTube if you just want a taste of looking at a football player who really was like the only person I can even come up with is Earl Campbell. Me too. And yes, even that though, if you think about it, speaks to Jim Brown because you talk about somebody who tragically limped away from the sport instead of walked. That's Earl Campbell. And so they played that same style and yet Jim goes off into Hollywood and and just starts this incredible groundbreaking career there as well. I'm coming. I'm coming to Hollywood. You've mentioned now Muhammad Ali and you've mentioned Bill Russell. And you've also talked about how shocked you were when you went to write the book that there weren't a billion books written about Jim Brown already. And I'm wondering, as I sit here and I listen to you, Dave, you know, Bill Russell and Muhammad Ali, two guys that he had relationships with, they had personalities and smiles and laughs for miles. 
Bill Russell lived here in Mercer Island for the for the majority yeah. of his life. And who who will ever forget that cackle? When he started to laugh, when Bill Russell would laugh, the whole world would laugh with him. I don't think I ever saw Jim Brown smile. Did he have any? I mean, you were with him for a week. Would he crack a joke? Did he have a dry sense of humor? Did he have any sense of humor? Yeah, he could get very dry with the sense of humor for sure. Like I would ask him like, well, what was that conversation? And he would just like, uh, he would talk about like, yeah, I would sit there on this very deck with Richard Pryor and we would talk for hours and hours late into the night. I would say, wow, can you tell me about some of those conversations? And he would just look at me silent for three seconds and just go, no. <laughs> and, and, and then, and, but, th- but there was, there was definitely a, a sort of, wouldn't you like to know twinkle? Yeah. And the one time I actually, I have a picture of it and it, it, it looks more like a smile than a grimace, but I swear he was smiling. Yeah. Was I said, Hey, before we go, can I take a picture? And he said, and he said, sure. And I said, you ever done a selfie? And he looked at me and he said, I have not done a selfie. And I said, well, how about first time for everything? And without asking, I just sort of poked my head in and went like this. And, <laughs> and that, I have the photo and, and that, that got a half grin out of it. A half grin. Yeah. And Didn't that, that was as good as it got. God. And most of the time, just just a very serious person. Yeah, uh, yeah. Very much aggrieved in some respects. Like, I believe he was his own worst enemy when it was all said and done. He believed that his own worst enemy was were like these kinds of faceless people out there preventing him from getting his due. Mm -hmm. And you think about that idea of him getting his due. What would he want his due for? And then when you when you look at like the amount of community activism he did, particularly the work with the gangs, which I wrote about in great length in the book, it makes you think you do get you, you do get caught up in this of forgetting just the, the, the terrible things he's been accused of for the he's been accused of for the right. bulk of his life. Right. And you start thinking like, why doesn't he have more recognition? And then you wait a second, you say, oh, yeah, that's why here's somebody who with the help of others, but it was in his home, like organized a gang truce in Los Angeles on the very eve of the Rodney King verdict. Mm. And you think about all the violence that accompanied the aftermath of that. And then you think about what could that violence have looked like if there was also a full out gang war taking place in the context of everything, which could have happened in Los Angeles in 1992. And he, his will, his force of will helped prevent that from happening and then working with tons of people, by the way, inside and outside prison walls, he worked with uh, a black gorilla family, like some of the toughest gangs in the prisons. And he worked with Nazis in the prison with the whole idea of using a his group. This is what someone called it to me. It was very uh, smart, like sort of like an alcoholics anonymous for gang members. So they would take in people, in the prisons, like like some of like the the the, the white uh, power groups, and they would basically train them off of being Nazis through teaching them, and then they would even speak at some of what they called the American graduations of people who would get through the full curriculum of really taking ownership of your life and ownership of what you'd done. So he plays for the Syracuse basketball team. I think he scores forty or fifty in a game. He quits because there's a quota. For black athletes, he quits the basketball team. The only avenue after his Syracuse football days to earn a living 
would be football. He plays football for nine years. He rushes for over 12,000 yards. He could have been the MVP probably seven or eight times. He was the MVP for three. And then he quits at age 29 at the pinnacle off of an MVP season. Was this all about the movie opportunity? I think he, you know, my personal opinion reading this stuff is that maybe he misdiagnosed what was out there for him movie-wise because of the whole racism thing in Hollywood? Was it the Dirty Dozen? And talk about the, the conversation that he had with Art Modell that led him to quitting the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, I mean, imagine you're Jim Brown for a second. Jim Brown didn't have a dream of being an actor. Jim Brown was approached by Hollywood about being an actor. He was famous. He was big. He was strong. This is the late 1960s. He's considered very handsome. And you'd had the emergence of people like Sidney Poitier and the recently departed Harry Belafonte. And it was, and you were also having what was called the breakup of the studio system in the late 60s and early 70s. A whole new generation of rebel filmmakers introduced by the 60s that wanted to bring in more black actors and black artists. And Jim Brown was being brought along on that wave into Hollywood and you're, you're totally right about him misdiagnosing what the ceiling for him could be. But I mean, in his defense, you had people in the media calling him like the black John Wayne mm -hmm. and thinking it was just going to be up, up and away uh, for, for black actors instead of what it actually was, which was a lot of ebbs and a lot of flows, uh, a, a, a lot of pitfalls um, and very little actual power behind the camera. Mm -hmm. And all of this was what Jim Brown walked into. Now, the Dirty Dozen, I think, was giving him a lot of confidence because here he is in the offseason working on a big budget film with big stars like Lee Marvin, uh, thinking to himself, you know, this is going to be my, my future. future. Yeah. Now, it was Art Modell who made sure it was not his future, but his present. <laughs> I mean, this is on Modell. Jim Brown is had it. And, and, uh -huh. and, I, and I, this is just the way it is, is that. Jim Brown had it organized so the filming of The Dirty Dozen would be in the off-season in 1967. So, or was it 66? But, um, but he was in this position uh, doing The Dirty Dozen, and then there was this massive weather uh, storm, uh, rainstorms throughout the set. So production was delayed. So he was going to miss part of training camp. Big deal. He's the reigning MVP. They had just won a championship two years before. Sure. Uh, and it was Art Modell who said publicly that he was going to fine him some ridiculously small amount of money for missing every single practice. It was just a power move. And Jim Brown responded, and here's this word again, manhood. He responded by uh, reading a public uh, resignation letter from the set of The Dirty Dozen that was reprinted. And this is how big a deal it was. It was reprinted in Time Magazine in its entirety, uh, the letter. And basically it said, I'm not going to be treated like anything less than a man. I would sooner walk away from football and I'll certainly walk away from Mr. Modell and I'm done. It's amazing to me that the Cleveland Browns haven't won a title since then. Uh, it's amazing to me that the city, which was formerly, by the way, known as a uh, city of champions. That's what they called Cleveland. The city. Can you believe that? They called Cleveland <laughs> the city of champions. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and I guess if you're Art Modell and you just won a title in 64, you start thinking, eh, I'll win it another time. 
Well, Dan Marino thought that too, you know, that he'd get another shot. <laughs> Thanks at the for Super reminding Bowl. me. Thanks for sorry, sorry. Me. But it, it is that thing though, where a lot of athletes God. feel like, like, like think about what Joe Burrow said last year about like my, my or my window is going to be my whole career. I heard that and I was like, okay. hubris there, buddy. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> and, and similarly, uh, I think Art Modell totally had that mentality of whatever we'll get somebody else. Yes. Uh, and that was it. look what happened. Okay. No titles for the city nah. until 2016 with LeBron. And if I could just say something about that, it, it was a real full circle thing for the city when Jim Brown was there as part of the parade for the Cleveland Browns and LeBron James talked about him and the victory ceremony. And that was a moment because I was working on the book at the time where I actually thought to myself, gee, maybe Jim Brown does get his happy ending. Maybe he does get his retirement where everybody says, look at the good he did outweighs the bad. Uh, and, and isn't it true that, uh, you know, that, that it's time to let bygones be bygones. But Jim Brown, he just couldn't live that way. And by the fall of 2016, uh, he not only had publicly endorsed uh, Donald Trump for, for the presidency, which was its own I mean, whether people listening to your pod agree or disagree with that, I think we would all agree that it was a highly polarizing move to do such a thing. And he picked a fight with a person who is probably the most liked person in the U.S. Congress or at the very least respected, Representative John Lewis, because of his years as part of the civil rights movement. He sure. picks a fight with John Lewis. Really? really? Yeah. And went on CNN and said all John Lewis ever did was organize parades. Oh. I know you call them marches or demonstrations, but they never accomplished anything. They were wow. just parades to me. I didn't me. know that. And yeah. So, I mean, but that to me is Jim Brown. And then, of course, he shows up to the White House with Kanye West, which yeah. led to, gee, a whole bunch of things. Um, but but that's my whole point is that he, I don't think he was ever really content yeah. unless he was in some kind of squabble. Humor me and our audience. The love scene between Jim Brown and Raquel Welch, historic in, in, in certain ways, and different versions of that story from Jim Brown and Raquel Welch many years <laughs> later, right? They, didn't, they, they agreed to disagree about that, that scene. Oh, Mitch, your research on Raquel Welch uh, has no peer. <laughs> you, you, not that I can blame you. Uh, I mean, it, the, the movie was called uh, 100 Rifles. First of all, about Jim Brown, there's a film critic named Donald Bogle, and I'm going to paraphrase what he said because what he said was a little, uh, shall we say, more risque than I'm comfortable mm -hmm. saying on the okay. pod. Okay. But basically what he said was that um, Sidney Poitier was the first black film star. Jim Brown was the first black film star that they, they let the audience imagine had a dick, basically is what he said. <laughs> because the way... Sidney Poitier was marketed to mainstream America was very much like he's very handsome, but he's also very safe. Guess who's coming to dinner? Movies like that or yeah. Patches of Blue. Yeah. Like, yes, we'll, we'll give him a girlfriend, even a white girlfriend, but it's going to be so chaste. It's, we can show this film in the Vatican. Mm -hmm. Jim Brown was there to screw uh, on film and off film. And he like he said, he said, I walked right into Hollywood and right into the sexual revolution. So for him, a scene with Raquel Welch was uh, for him exactly what he should have been doing. And yet it was historic, this interracial love scene. 
in the film that was very, for the time, very racy. Now, Jim Brown's version of the story, which is in his book, Out of Bounds, is frankly something today we would look at as being kind of gross. Uh, he talks about feeling that Raquel Welch was into it. So he started ad-libbing a thing or two uh, <laughs> to the scene and about how she, when it was done, she was basically like, ooh, baby, baby. And then he sort of does ha, ha, ha. And you might know what happened after that when yeah. the camera stopped rolling, like like super inferences. Yeah. And her her memory of it, which is in uh, Spike Lee's film, it, to me it's like the best part of Spike Lee's doc about Jim Brown. Is she basically says, yeah, Jim Brown's one of those uh, big, strong men who, when it comes to sex, acts a little bit like a child. <laughs> and she was like, whatever. Do you know how many love scenes I've been with guys who thought they were the next Don Juan DeMarco? And so, so that was the difference there. But it's also really interesting because it speaks about what Hollywood was like at that time. Like today, most film sets will have what they call intimacy coaches. To, to sure, make sure, sure that that lines aren't crossed and everybody feels comfortable. Same. And that was just not the way in the early 70s. Let's finish with this, Dave, the relationship between Jim Brown and Richard Pryor. Oh, wow. I think um, it's a very interesting one. It's sad the way it ended. I heard you on a recent interview say it's maybe Jim Brown's only or biggest regret the way the relationship with Richard Pryor ended. Tell everybody about the film company, the proposed film company that didn't work out and the relationship between the two. I mean, Jim Brown got, it was the only time he ever got choked up when we were talking. I mean, we were talking about his mom. We were talking about his childhood, like pretty sensitive stuff. And he was largely pretty vague about this stuff. But with Richard Pryor, like it, it hit him to the bone. Um, Basically, uh, you know, you have two very successful uh, black men living in Hollywood uh, Two, So obviously they're they're walking in the same circles. And then Richard Pryor uh, has that infamous uh, moment where he lights himself on fire, freebasing cocaine. He almost dies. Jim Brown rushes to the hospital, gets him out of the hospital and basically cares for him. And a lot of people around Richard Pryor felt like that Jim was being predatory, like trying to take advantage of him while he was sick. Jim Brown's response was to say, no, the predators are the people I'm trying to save Richard Pryor from. Uh, the point is that Richard Pryor was very weak and Richard Pryor to a lot of people in his life was an open cash register. Uh, he was known as a soft touch uh, in that regard. So Jim Brown felt like he was protecting Richard Pryor from a lot of forces, including his ex-wife, uh, Richard's ex-wife who saw Richard's hospitalization as an opportunity. When, they, when Richard leaves the hospital, he's very weak, uh, both physically and emotionally. And in that context, he and Jim Brown announced that they're starting a film studio called Indigo Pictures. And it lasted less than a year, and the only film they ever produced was Richard Pryor's concert film, Here and Now, where he compliments Jim and credits Jim for saving his life in that concert film. Uh, and it's very, very funny. A lot of people were posting clips about it of Jim Brown, like scaring the fire away that was trying <laughs> to kill him and, and things like that. And, um, and they passed on films like the color purple and purple rain, oh. uh, two, two purple hits, if you will, that they both said, we're not going to film. And it's so interesting because 
what really broke up the film company, and it had a lot of investors, like, and it was a big deal when it launched, was Jim Brown and Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor just was not all there, physically, mentally, emotionally. And when Jim Brown said, you know, that, look, this is a film company that's not just about making films about black people. This is a film company where we want to actually try to challenge some of the structural barriers in Hollywood. So we want black filmmakers, black key grips, uh, the catering service, you know, like whatever it takes. We just want to create more space. Now, the press of 1983 heard something like that, and they their response was, oh, so it's a racist film company. You're not going to hire white people who are as good as black people at these same jobs. And then they took that to Richard, and Richard Pryor uh, his response was to say, you know, no, we'll hire anybody. So they had this very different philosophical approach to it. And eventually, I think a lot of people poured some poison into Richard's ear about Jim uh, as he was still recovering. And that's what broke it up. And you got to hear interviews with Richard. His bitterness towards Jim Brown uh, is really intense. And I write in the book that it just seemed like there is a lot of display, psychological displacement of Richard Brown, of, of Richard Pryor towards Jim Brown that was connected to Richard's abusive upbringing. Mm -hmm. And he had a thing about men in authority around his life that was deeply, deeply, deeply tormented. And it seems like he put Jim in that category and it was, and Richard was like, yeah, I kept a gun with me in case Jim ever came by, you know, wow. like that level of, wow intense, intense dislike. Meanwhile, from Jim's end, Jim, Jim was in tears over this, like didn't understand why it broke up. I mean, this is big Jim Brown. We're talking about it. It was utterly devastating to him, not because of the film company as much as the connection that he felt with Richard Pryor, that he thought they were uh, inseparable brothers had been through the worst together with the free basing fire cared for him. Uh, you know, rubbed his skin with salve, you know, and bombs yeah, and the aftermath of the fire. And that was the only time I saw Jim Brown uh, choke up when we talked mm -hmm. was when he was talking about Richard Pryor. Fascinating stuff. The life and times of Jim Brown, the good, the bad, the ugly. By the way, the name of the book from 2018, Jim Brown, Last Man Standing. I promise you, you didn't hear the whole book in these last no. <laughs> 25 minutes. Dave Zirin is the uh, is the author, and he's good to be with us on Mitch Unfiltered. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Great questions, Mitch. Ladies and gentlemen, she's the director of financial planning at our Mitch Unfiltered partner, Evergreen Golf Call, Katie Versio. She's also my arch nemesis when it comes to financial trivia. Katie, how are you? How's everyone over at Evergreen Golf Call? I'm doing well, Mitch. Thanks for having me. Everybody's good over there. Our theme today is what? So today we're doing a market update. Okay, which brings us to three questions. I typically go over three. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good today. So I'm ready for question number one. As I know, we discussed quite a bit over the last few months. 2022 was the worst year on record for a balanced portfolio with both stocks and bonds down double digits. So true or false? In 2023, both stocks and bonds are up. Is that true or false? It's absolutely true, Katie Versio. That's right. Yes. It is true. 
So the market is off to a much better start this year, even though there's a lot more economic uncertainty. Mm -hmm. The stock market's up about 8% and bonds are up nearly 3%. Very good. And I am up one for one, which screams at me, quit, Mitch. Quit right now and go out one for one. But I'm not going to do it. I'm going to press my luck. What's question number two, Katie? Okay, so number two is another true or false. We'll see how you do with this one. So the yield curve is currently inverted, meaning that short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates. Is that true or false? I'm going to say false, Katie. That's false. Oh, it's actually true. Wow. So I know it's uh, it's counterintuitive. Typically, you think the longer time frame you have, the more interest you get. Mm-hmm. But it's actually the opposite in this environment. It's typically an indication of a recession, and you actually get more interest for shorter time periods. That's actually surprising. It leaves me one for two. I'm not quitting. I'm continuing to press my luck. I'm going two for three. What's question number three, Katie? The 10-year treasury currently pays an interest rate of 3.5%. So knowing what we talked about in number two, what do six month treasuries yield? So 10 year yields three and a half. Does a six month treasury yield 4%, 5% or 6%? We know more. Question is how much more? I'm going B, I'm going 5% for 667. I'm going 5% for two out of three today. That's right, it is 5%. So it's an interesting environment where you only get three and a half percent for holding a position for 10 years, but you get 5% on the short term. So it's a really interesting environment with interest rates elevated at this level. We think now is a good time to lock in return. You can get better interest rates on money markets now. There's a lot more options for investors to park their cash than just a regular savings account. It's an unusual time in the world, the financial world, and they are there for you. Evergreengk.com. Not only a great partner of Mitch Unfiltered and part of the reason that we are possible on this podcast, but just a terrific resource. So check them out, evergreengk.com. How about the turn in weather in the Pacific Northwest last week? And don't you dare complain about it being too hot. Don't know about you, but when the sun comes out and the temperatures rise, the Levy family always looking for fun restaurants to go with outside seating. And maybe that's not the first thing that comes to mind when I say Daniel's Broiler, but whoa, the Les Shy location sits at the edge of Lake Washington with fabulous views. The South Lake Union spot has a revamped deck that allows you to enjoy the seaplanes while having a steak or salmon. And then there are the terraces atop the world in Bellevue. Western views across the lake to the skyline of downtown Seattle. Yeah, they're known for USDA prime steaks and super fresh seasonal seafood, not to mention my favorite bacon wrap scallops. But on a nice day, a nice Seattle day, just nothing better than Daniel's Broiler world-class steakhouses. Un filtered okay hot shot scott other stuff segment episode 241 i know you like sports stuff anthony rendon he will not face charges over his altercation with an athletics fan 
Did you remember? You saw the video. Oh, it's a long time ago already. Yeah, this has been kind of hanging yeah, in the March balance. March 31st is yeah, when right it happened. Right at the very beginning of the season. Maybe the first game of the season. Yeah, he right. was seen grabbing an ace yeah. fan shirt on video following a loss at the Coliseum. But yeah, the, the fan never came forward. So he never said, that was me, that he grabbed. I don't so care. So it's all over. Now. It's all over so he can move on with his life now. All right. Washington softball and Washington baseball both been eliminated. Yeah, One rough. from the College World Series. That's the softball team. The baseball team made it to regionals and lost to somebody called Dallas Baptist. I didn't know that there was a Dallas Baptist. Who, who knew? Eric Dickerson did not run for <laughs> Dallas Baptist. He ran for SMU. Yes, him and Craig James. Craig James, yeah. the Pony Express. Sure, yeah. Dickerson. I don't know who Dallas Baptist is, but I don't like him. Yeah. I'm Frankly, I don't. Right there with you. Yeah. How dare you? Yeah. It's yeah. a bummer for the And that's ball. not a religious comment, please. Don't write yeah, me right, at MitchMitchUnfiltered.com. Yeah, Bailey Klingler, the senior for the softball, she's out. We're going to miss her. I don't know who that is. First I, team All-American. I don't know anybody on the team. Her name's Bailey Klingler. You remember the last name Klingler? Well, I know two of them. Go on. I remember the Houston quarterback who oh, threw from a billion yards, David be, Klingler. That would be her uncle, yes. And I remember the guy from MASH, Klingler. <laughs> With the big snod, <laughs> yes. Jamie Farr. Yeah, close enough, right. Yeah, but wasn't David Klingler. Kling, wasn't he Klingler? No, he's Klinger, I want to say. Klinger. Close Maybe. enough. Yeah, close enough. What a snot. You talk about a guy I want to walk around next to. I <laughs> know. Prodigious, that that nose. Oh, yeah. Jamie Farr. Oh, one of is the Is he also- still alive, Jamie Farr? I think Farr? he is still alive. God bless his soul in that schnoz. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they, I mean, this can't be good news for you, but they say the nose keeps growing, like your ears. and Your ears and nose keep growing throughout life. You knew that, right? I mean, what must Jamie Farr's look like now? We got to find a current picture. I did not know that my nose continues to grow. You had never heard that? No. Yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah, through you see like really old guys with enormous like ears, like in the nose and ears continue to grow. Or I just made that up. I can't remember. This One of the two. Bad <laughs> Bad news. <laughs> it uh, came out this week, Hotshot, that before Russell Wilson. The Zoftic Russell Wilson was traded to the Denver Broncos. Did you read this from Greg Bishop of Sports Illustrated? He claims there was a deal in place with the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, I did see that. Now, of course, Russell Wilson only really wanted to play for the Denver Broncos, so he vetoed both the trade to the Eagles and a trade to the Washington Commanders. But had that trade gone through, gone down, Mm -hmm. Jalen Hurts... I don't think he was the MVP, but he was damn close. Yeah. Took him to the Super Bowl. Right. Would have been in competition with Geno Smith for the starting quarterback job of the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah. Would you like to have Jalen Hurts? I'm not a huge Jalen Hurts fan. I oh, don't really? think I think I would have liked to have him last year on last year's contract, but you see the contract that he just signed. Yeah. I don't know. Not quite that good. For like that the wealthiest money. contract of all time. All right, yeah. Which will probably be broken in a mm, year. But. That would scare the hell out of me to give Jalen Hurts that contract. Okay. That kind of money. But I just think it's so weird yeah. that had Russell Wilson said, okay, I'll go play for Philadelphia, he would have been the Eagles quarterback. Oh, yeah. And I don't know. Who would have won? Would it have been Jalen Hurts or Geno Smith? Yes. Who would have won the comp? I think Geno probably would have beat Jalen Hurts because Pete Carroll went into the year favoring Yeah. Geno Smith knows the offense better. Yeah, I mean Russell Jalen Hurts would have been standing on the sidelines for the Seahawks. <laughs> Russell could have found a house with more than three bedrooms in Philadelphia. I think so. Everything would have worked out better yeah. for him. It would have been awesome. Yeah, Jamie Farr still alive, by the way, if you must know. Oh. Born in 1934, he's like 87. My mother 89. was born in 1934. Okay, so gonna be 89 this year. Still alive, Jamie Farr. Wow, that's great. We got to get him on 19, now. Isn't he from like Toledo, Ohio, or something? 
I think he's from Why the would you know that? Am I right about that? Um, I don't. I don't know. I he think was, I'm right about. He was that. born in Toledo, Ohio, to Lebanese American parents. Why would you know where Jamie Farr is? There's born? actually a, a sports reason why I know. Okay, go on. He was a big proponent of the LPGA Tour. Hmm. Probably didn't know that. No. I don't know that he played golf, but he was a big believer in the LPGA Tour. And there was a golf tournament on the LPGA Tour for the for many years called the Jamie Farr Classic. I do And it was that. played in Toledo, Ohio. Oh. So that's why I just guessed on Mitch Unfiltered that he's from Toledo, Ohio. <laughs> it would have been better if you not have gone through that whole routine. I just know where everyone's from. I'll edit it out. Next story. <laughs> Okay, your, your buddy Taylor Swift yes. laughing all the way to the bank in her latest of stretch course of she is. massive success, catapulting yes. her to the number two spot on Forbes' richest women in music list. Really? Number two. Now, the question is, yes. who is number one who almost doubles Taylor Swift at $1.4 billion? You mean in career earnings? Yeah, just who's worth the most money in music right now? Which, which female is worth the most money? God. Taylor Swift's worth $740 million. This person... Somebody who's been around for a long time, obviously. Not necessarily, no. I mean, no? probably 20 years. Not like Barbara Streisand. If that, Super Bowl halftime show. I was going to say Janet Jackson. That was the first name that came to my mind. It's not Janet. Super Bowl halftime Katie show. Katy Perry. Closer. Her, Super Bowl halftime her show. Her name is Rihanna. Oh. $1.4 billion she's worth. But she calls everybody boo. Boo, boo. <laughs> not me. She calls she's, me boo. She's got her music Whenever career. Whenever I see her, she says, hey, boo. She's got a cosmetic line, too. So it's not just music. Yeah. But yeah, Taylor Swift, $740 million. Didn't she do something a bit obscene at the last Super Bowl? No. People were mad that she grabbed her Rihanna yeah. dressed in plastic all the way up to her chin. Yeah, she was pregnant at the time. <laughs> yeah, she was. No. By the way, Madonna, if you're curious, still worth $580 million. Yeah, I might have guessed if I would have thought about it about Madonna. Beyonce, $540 million. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. You know who's, who's going to break it? Who's going to break the record? For music? Yeah, well, I guess Taylor Swift's going to be along for a long yeah, time. Yeah, she's going to be around. Yeah. I mean, this whole Ticketmaster concert tickets, yeah, it's just yeah. forget it. I was going to say it's Adele makes money. a lot of money. She does, But Adele. probably not like this because... Taylor Swift is playing football stadiums. Right. She's going out and, and touring. And Adele's playing a 5,000-seat Las Vegas arena, right? That's exactly right, Something yes. Like that. Okay. Scotty Pippen can't get out of his own way, Hotshot. Uh-oh. First, we all know <laughs> his ex-wife is dating Michael Jordan's son. Yeah. And then she comes out and says, I need to have sex five times a day <laughs> just to rub it in. Right. Now, now, a May 26th appearance Hotshot on ex-Bulls teammate Stacy Stacy King has a podcast. Stacy King from Oklahoma? Yes. Wow. Left-hander? Was he left-handed or was that Wayman Tisdale? That's Wayman Tisdale. Okay. See, I know sports from like 1988. Could Stacy King's podcast be better than Mitch Unfiltered? Oh, God, no. Stacy. Does King. he have patrons? No. Pippen jumped on another chance to take aim at Michael Jordan, saying oh. LeBron James will be, quote, the greatest statistical guy that ever played the game of basketball when he retires. This is his quote on Stacy King's podcast. Scotty Pippen says, and I quote, I seen Michael Jordan play before I came to the Bulls. You guys seen him play before I came to the Bulls. He was a horrible player. He was horrible to play with. He was all one-on-one. -on -one. He's shooting bad shots. And all of a sudden, we become a team when I get there. We start winning. Everybody forgot how bad Michael Jordan was before I joined the Bulls. Now, I'm going to confess, I guess I have forgotten too. Because I don't remember Michael Jordan being 
horrible uh, no. after he came into the league. Now, horrible to play with? That I could buy. You maybe don't, you wouldn't want to be How horrible teammate. could Michael Jordan I, have been to play with? I'm giving him a I look. I would have just watched. I'm trying to give him While a I'm little. I'm on the floor, back like a tennis man. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there was ever a stretch where Michael Jordan was horrible. No. He was. Scott Skiles, Scotty, maybe? Scotty Pippen says <laughs> that Michael Jordan, yeah. he's seen it. Yeah. He was horrible before Pippen came to the Bulls. This is kind of sad in a way. I feel kind of sad for Scotty. Yeah, yeah. I think he went through some financial stuff yeah, as well. Yeah. He never got that enormous contract. He never got he the big contract. His wife needs it Did five times Sonics a day from a trade younger him, man. Draft him and trade him for oh, like Olden Polonese or something. Great, another great move by uh, the GM at the time. Yes, they they drafted they? Scotty Pippen and traded him. Yeah, I think for Olden Polonese, the uh, fake policeman. Yeah. You remember that? Of course. Yeah. See, I used to. So you think sports. it's sad? You think it's a sad story? I think, it's, I think he just needs to stop. It's sad. I think he's just insanely bitter, and it kind of bums me out because I've I always liked Scottie Pippen as a player. I don't know the guy, obviously. Yeah. but I've always liked Scottie Pippen. Who do you like more, Scottie Pippen or Carl Malone? Well, Carl's another one, right? That people impregnated are, like 12, 13 year olds, yeah, like, something like that. Yes. Yeah. So Utah Jazz legend Carl Malone is in the news. Okay. He auctioned off 24 pieces of memorabilia from the 1992 Summer Olympics USA Basketball Dream Team. Wow. Of which he was a member. He was, yes. Game-used jerseys and sneakers from all 12 members to the tune of $5 million. So Jeez. 24 pieces he auctioned off personally and got $5 bucks for it. Would you like to take a guess at what took up most of that $5 million? Michael Jordan. Oh, I see. I thought it was all Carl Malone stuff. No. Oh, he's, oh, so he was somehow hoarding like stuff. Yes, Michael Jordan stuff. <laughs> I thought he was so, giving away uh, his stupid shoes. Like, who gives a shit? Okay. The bulk of those earnings from the auction with Collectibles Marketplace Gold and unsurprisingly came yeah. via Michael Jordan's number nine white jersey. That's awesome. Worn during the 127 to 76 dismantling of Lithuania <laughs> in the semifinals. That number nine white jersey sold for $3,003,000. Oh, my God. A record for any game used Olympics Jordan item. Jordan's game worn sneakers he had from the 92 Tournament of Americas. They went for $420,000. There's something seriously. I, I know. I can't articulate it. What is wrong with Carl Malone selling Michael yeah, Jordan stuff and, and bringing the money in for himself? Carl Malone's LA Gears went for $48. <laughs> game worn. Game worn, though. It is weird that he was like hoarding that stuff. Do you think he called Michael and said, Do you have any problem with me auctioning? No, I don't, I don't, Carl Malone does what Carl Malone wants to do, it sounds like. So, no, I don't think he did. That's crazy. So at the end, he said to Michael at some point, can you give me your number nine jersey when they were playing? Yeah, right. And he put it away, and now he's selling it all. Even in 92, Michael was probably didn't think that it would go for $3 million. Sure, have my jersey. Who wants to Is Michael jersey? somewhere in Florida yelling, sell your own damn jersey? <laughs> yes, he is. But that's what, when you said $5 million, I'm thinking just for the Carl Malone stuff. Like, what could he have sold that people wanted to buy Carl 24 Malone? 24 pieces, wow. $5 million, and Michael Jordan's number nine game-worn jersey. Three million and three thousand. In a way, it's it's kind of cool that he was smart enough to grab that stuff. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not cool. No. <laughs> How many people have made money? Like we heard about, like a ball boy that got a pair of shoes from Jordan who made four million dollars. Yeah, but this is his teammate. Yeah, this is the guy you sell weird. your own stuff. Uh, another the rich guy too. The ball by the way. boy's not going to get much for his his <laughs> his T-shirt. That's true. Yeah. You see the story about Rams defensive coordinator Raheem Morris? No, I have not. Former uh, NFL head coach Raheem Morris. Real-life hero. He, oh. So he helped save a three-year-old boy from drowning at a Las Vegas hotel pool over the weekend. Really? 
So the terrifying event happened at the Encore when, according to a post on his wife's social media page, a little boy was pulled from the water without a pulse by his father. (sighs) An on-duty lifeguard raced over to provide aid to the toddler, and thankfully, a quick-thinking Morris jumped in to help by grabbing the nearby AED, you know, the automatic external defibrillator. And this comes on the heels of his training because of DeMar Hamlin. Oh. So he he's like, ready all the coaches go. are trained up now. He's and ready they, to go. That's right where his head went. Where's the AED? And there was a doctor that came over to the boy, and they put it on him, and he, he lived. The three-year-old was fine. Got it. Crazy, right? Oh. Yeah, they put the pads on the child and he ended up being every okay. Every parent's nightmare. The nightmare. A kid in the pool. Forget it, right? Just like a, nightmare. A toddler he, in the pool is every parent's nightmare. Yeah, no pulse. Oh, my God. Right. So good for Raheem Morris, man. Quick thinking. Went over and grabbed that AED, and the three-year-old's going to be okay. Do you know the name Monty Williams? Monty Williams sounds yeah. familiar. Monty Williams played for Notre Dame. He was a good college player. He played for a cup of coffee in the NBA, and then he became a coach. Okay. He also has a rare heart defect, I believe. But he was the coach of the Phoenix Suns up until just about three weeks ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, right after they got eliminated in the NBA playoffs, Monty Williams got fired, even though they won a whole bunch of games. They were like the number three or four seed. And he was the NBA coach of the year there one year. Oh, wow. And they had Kevin Durant and Chris Paul and all these guys. Phoenix, with their new ownership, remember they they sold the team. Mm -hmm. The bad guy sold the team, was forced to sell the team. And he was fired from Phoenix. And a lot of people felt badly for him, like, they have one of the better teams in the Western Conference, and he's one of the better young coaches, and they're firing him. They just don't like him. The new ownership just didn't like him. Yeah. You don't have to feel badly for Monty Williams anymore. Okay. He has signed on to become the new head coach where Dwayne Casey was, our buddy, yeah. with the Detroit Pistons. Okay. As the story goes, Monty Williams didn't even want the Pistons job. He had to be talked into interviewing for the Pistons job. Then they offered him the job, and he said, thank you, but no thanks. I'm going to take a year off. And they said, no, no, no. We want you to come be the coach of the Pistons. And here's what we're going to do. Uh-oh. We're going to give you six years, $78 million. The, the biggest contract in NBA coaching history. I would hope so, yeah. With a chance to make $100 million in incentives. Oh, my god. Monty gosh. Williams. Yeah. I went from feeling bad for Monty Williams <laughs> right. to... Who the fuck is Monty Williams? <laughs> and why is he richer than half the players on the team? What the hell? <laughs> so weird. What the hell has he done? <laughs> Monty Williams. He's the new head coach of the wow. Detroit Pistons, and he's got a six-year contract that could be worth a hundred million smackers. No pressure. And the Phoenix Suns didn't want him. Right. No sense in having him here. Crazy. Amazing. The pressure, though. Like, if it doesn't work out, they're going to pay all that money. Oh. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure. It's good work if you can find it. Yes, it is. Your buddy Jeff Bezos and Lauren Sanchez. I have it, yes. Renting a house in Malibu. You see that? Oh, I thought you were going to talk about their engagement because this is the last time you and I were together. Yeah. They've become engaged. I like that they're renting a house in Malibu. Yeah. Credit problems, I think, maybe. Yeah. Couldn't get a loan. Yeah, the the house is incredible, and they're talking about maybe even buying it someday. And who owned it? Somebody owned it that was popular? No? Uh, That would be Kenny G. Yes, First of all, okay, do do you know what the rent is? Do you know what Kenny G is charging them a month? That would be $600,000 a month to fucking rent, to live in a house. $600,000 a month. First of all, how did Kenny G get the money for this house as well? Did he get it on the ground floor of Starbucks? Kenny G's had some pretty damn big Uh, houses and nice nice real estate portfolios. He had a great house in Hunts Point, didn't he? Nah, I may be making that up. But nonetheless, let's say it's true. 
How did he get what from selling Kenny, CDs? With yes, the, just a yes. saxophone. Yes, women love Kenny G's music. He must have got in on some stock from Starbucks or something. Maybe that ain't from selling records. That Malibu house that they're living in? Yeah. It's crazy big. Yeah, that's right. I can't believe that Kenny G, of all people. Right. He did a free concert, for, remember, for uh, Kanye West hired him. You understand that the two of them got engaged on the new yacht that we've talked about a lot on this yeah, show. Yeah, they couldn't get through the bridge. Right. It wasn't like $500 million yacht. Would you like to take a guess at how big the engagement ring <laughs> oh, is? Oh, God. <laughs> She's at the bottom of the pool trying to lift her hand off. Go ahead. Do you remember Wilma Flintstone had a big rock? Yeah. Oh, she did. She Wilma. Big, Fred oh. loved her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really did. You want to take a guess? How many carrots? I couldn't even begin 20. to tell you. Oh, God. $3 million price tag on the engagement ring. She was either married or at least had a child with former NFL Pro Bowl tight end Tony Gonzalez or Is maybe all right? maybe Hall of Fame tight end Tony Gonzalez one of the great tight ends of all time arguably ca- the greatest yeah he caught the ball against the the Seahawks in that remember that game yep Russell Wilson's first yeah playoffs Atlanta. go around yeah when he yeah. came off the field he said I something good happening here yeah, no, yeah, don't yeah. get down Seahawks fans yep and he was right about that anyway but uh yeah Tony Gonzalez and Lawrence Sanchez I didn't know that either were married they at least have a child together yes D- don't they say that like the what you spent on a wedding ring should be three months salary I mean in a way well, then she got ripped off that's what I'm saying <laughs> I, I think he makes more than, I, don't, I don't think he got a salary anymore so he's unemployed Okay, so it makes sense then, yeah, I guess. I don't, I don't think he's... I don't Why do I think he makes more than a million a month? Just, oh. <laughs> just a little more than a million a month. By yes. the way, you'll be happy to know the $600,000 price tag does not include furniture. All of Kenny G's shits in storage. <laughs> Get your own furniture. I don't know why that part made me laugh. By the way, your buddy Pee Wee Herman going on another big adventure. You see this? Yeah. He's going to be in court because the guy just filed a lawsuit claiming his priceless belongings have been jacked. Paul Rubens is pissed because there's a, a bunch of stuff from the Pee Wee's Playhouse show that he wants it all back, and he's taking this guy to court. Like dog, uh, what's it called? Uh, dog chair, the Flory puppets, and Mr. Window. The red bicycle. He wants this shit back. I don't know if the bicycle, that was from the movie. I don't know if that's in it, but yeah. But Pee Wee would like to say. How old would a guy like Pee Wee Herman be at this point? Paul Rubens is probably Older than me, right? 60. Oh, yeah, older than me. He was in a Cheech and Chong movie in like 76. He was? Yeah. It was like a it's like wow. a small part where he works. He's wow. the front desk worker at a hotel. It's not for sale, Francis. <laughs> That's good. I always love that. That's movie. good. My father says everything is negotiable. <laughs> good for you and your dad. I know you are, but what am I? Or <laughs> yeah, something, <whatever>. So last year, Hotshot, I remember stumbling on the NCAA Women's Golf Championship. Stay with me on this. Okay. It's a year ago, about right now. I was watching TV. I don't remember what I was doing. And I flipped it on, and the women were playing in Scottsdale, Arizona, the Division I Women's Golf Championship. And a freshman was leading and ended up winning. The freshman's name was Rose Zhang. Is Rose Zhang. No, no relation to Angela Zhang. Okay. She was a freshman, and she was a Division I Women's Champion of the Year. Okay. And I was like, that's a pretty cool story. Freshman. Yeah, she impressive. was like 18 at the time. And so a year later, like a week ago, 10 days ago, I'm again watching TV and I'm flipping around and what's on the golf channel, the 2023 women's division (laughs) one national championship. Coincidentally. Of which sophomore Rose Zhang is leading again. Wow. And I start to wonder, has anybody ever won it twice back to back, let alone freshman and sophomore years? Right. And she wins it. She wins it in in a playoff. So she wins it her freshman and sophomore year from Stanford. She wins a Division I 
national championship. And as it turns out, no woman has ever won it twice. She's the first one. And she did it in back-to-back years as an 18-year-old freshman and a 19-year-old sophomore. A few days after that, last week, she decides, I'm done playing college golf. I'm going to become a professional after my sophomore season. And she's granted a special invite into this weekend's LPGA Tour event in New Jersey. A special exemption as a sophomore who's still living in the dorms right. in Stanford. She's the two-time, <laughs> That's amazing. she's the back-to-back <laughs> yeah. winner of the Division One championships. She's on a meal plan. She's on a meal plan. In the dorms, and in she's going dorms. to play a pro event. She's playing a pro event. It happened this past weekend. Her first ever as a pro. Oh, it she's happened. now turned pro. Okay. It's happened this week. She won it. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's unbelievable. <laughs> Holy. Won it. Like, what kind of prize money do you get for that? Uh, whatever it is. I know, but as a college kid, that's not, that's good spending money. <laughs> I mean, I'm, not, I'm not focused on the prize <laughs> I, money. I know, but it's, it's kind of cool. That she it, won the division yeah. one at freshman and sophomore, and then in her first tournament. How good is she? Amazing. Yeah. No wonder she decided to turn pro. She walked out there and won the damn thing. Unreal. Yeah, I mean, t- in two weeks' time, she's gone from her dorm to win the Division One championship and then win the LPGA event. That's really impressive. Crazy. Sounds like a good Mitch Unfiltered guest. I don't it's know. Might be hard getting her. Yeah, maybe she's getting big on us all of oh a sudden. My God. <laughs> well, now we have someone to keep an eye on. It's kind of cool to keep an eye on these stories and yeah. see how she does. Well, she's not forward. a Seattle area. Player, no, but, but I mean, to see a young a person go out there and play with the pros and kick their butt, it's kind of cool. Well, she's now a pro, so yeah. she earned the money. Yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right, Ryan McKenna, you might not know the name, but... Ryan McKenna. He was the Super Bowl selfie kid. He snapped a viral video years ago with Justin Timberlake. I don't know if you remember that. It was like he somehow got Justin Timberlake at the Super Bowl to take a selfie with no, him. It went viral. It was like call that. It was a whole thing. Well, he's taken a hard lesson from most young people who get some fame. He's pleaded no contest for allegedly going on a drunken rampage at a restaurant earlier this what? year. Yeah, God. And now he's on probation as he navigates adulthood. The 19-year-old pled no contest on two charges, resisting an officer without violence. Yes. And battery, the judge ordered the former selfie star to spend the next 12 months on probation. I have a few uh, non-sports stories that you might find interesting. Maybe you won't. A UK woman, an entrepreneur, is now selling her saliva online. Thanks to a TikTok video with over 541,000 views. It all started as a fluke, she said. And now I've been doing it for four years, Letitia Jones. She's been able to pay off her $11,000 debt and quit her job at Tesco simply by hawking her saliva online. Yeah, saw it. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Don't tell me it was part of your... Yeah, it's one of my headlines. But anyway... Oh, oh, oh no. I mean, how, I'll how, edit it out. But my... It's, <laughs> how could it not be? I mean, that's the craziest store, her saliva. A saliva. People are buying her spit. That's correct. And she even like... Uh, I'm probably going to gag if I say, but she puts a little water in her mouth and swishes it around and then spits it in. I, do we have to analyze it? <laughs> can we just, can I All go right, off fine, to the next move story? On, yes. A filmmaker by the name of Andrew Stein, ever heard of him? No. 76 years old, was choking in a New York City buzzy restaurant. Okay. He was choking on a piece of pork oh. when the friend, his dear friend at the table with him, jumped into action and grabbed him and did the Heimlich maneuver and the the pork, the piece of pork came flying out. He saved his life. His dear friend, an 87-year-old Oscar winner. Okay. Would you like to guess who the 87-year-old Oscar winning friend is that saved his life? Who the hell is 87? Probably the last guy you would choose to give you the Heimlich maneuver because you would think he's not strong enough to get it done. I just think of Woody Allen. Woody Allen! Really? (laughs) 
<laughs> the smallest, weakest little, especially in 87. It reminds me of that that joke he had. He he wanted he lived in a rough neighborhood and he wanted to yeah. get in shape, so he went to Jack Lalane's gym to yeah, try. Yeah. And he found out how much the membership cost. He said, "How much would it cost for Jack Lalane to just walk me home every night?" <laughs> I don't know why I thought about that. They were sitting at a <laughs> at a table for four. Alan Dershowitz was there. Oh wow! Alan's wife Suni Previn was there. What? They looked in horror as Stein. Wow turned red and struggled to breathe. That's when the five foot four Annie Hall director applied the life-saving maneuver with surprising strength and vigor, according to all the witnesses at the restaurant this past May 16th. Quote, this is Stein. I'm embarrassed to say it, but Woody Allen actually saved my life. I normally order fish, but this time I went for the pork. And soon after we started to eat, a piece of meat became lodged in my throat and I was struggling to breathe. Thank God for Woody. Lesson learned on pork, I guess, huh? That is a must be just a horrifying feeling when like no air is coming in. No air. Not good. Wow, good for Woody Allen. So next time you choke, you better hope that Woody Allen is in the restaurant <laughs> with you. He's going to get his arms around me. The legend of Hot Pockets continues, Hotshot. Okay. Do you remember when we talked last about Hot Pockets? Yeah, I think so. Was it like the air to Hot Pockets? Was that a part of it or no? I think we talked about that too, but okay. I'm referring to when the guy broke into the bank. Oh, right. Yes. He just wanted to heat up his Hot Pockets. He just yeah. wanted to use the microwave That's oven. Right. He had no interest in the money in no, the bank. No, who does? He just wanted to, and then remember there was the video of the people asking him as he was being handcuffed and put in the police car. Was it worth it? Hot Pockets, man. Yeah, that, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I got a new Hot Pockets story. Oh, gosh. A man in Kentucky has been jailed. Louisville, Kentucky. Allegedly, after shooting his roommate in the buttocks, after the roommate ate the last hot pocket in the freezer, the smoking gun reported that Clifton Williams, 64, and his roommate got into an argument after the hot pocket. Why does a roommate, why does a 64-year-old have a roommate? (laughs) It's Kentucky, for God's sakes. (laughs) They got into an argument after the hot pocket was consumed on Saturday, May 10th. That's the part you're focusing on. I'm with you, though. According to the Louisville <laughs> Metro Police Department, yeah. the victim said Williams got mad that he ate the last Hot Pocket and began throwing things at him. God. The victim told police that he tried to fight back in self-defense and then started to leave. When Williams went back into the residence in the 1000 block of Hathaway Avenue, he returned with a gun. According to the police report, Williams shot him in the ass while he was trying to leave. And oh I quote, God. the victim was able to find help a few blocks away after the shooting. Williams was arrested and charged with second degree felony assault. As it turns out, you can't shoot somebody in the ass just for eating the last hot pocket. Oh, you can't. I would have never known. No. no. You know, actually getting shot in the butt worked out pretty well for Forrest Gump, if you remember correctly. Oh, yeah. Lots of ice cream. Oh, you yeah. just get to lay there next Lieutenant to Lieutenant Dan, Dan who hates you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it worked out pretty well. And yes. he got discharged. Yes. Yeah, not, not the worst thing. Hey, he could have shot him, you know, could have killed him. So I'm glad the guy lived. But hey, Hot Pockets making people go crazy. Uh, what is it about Hot Pockets? Are, are you familiar with Hot Pockets? I am familiar. Yeah. I, we don't Do buy you, them. No. I just... I, if I'm going to eat bad, it's going to be something that tastes good at least, right? I mean, Apparently, Hot Pocket. Le- they're legendary. Hot Pockets are legendary. They are. I don't really. People love Hot Pockets. They they do. They have kind of a cult following Hot Pockets. And they have that weird little tube you stick them in, that little paper. Con- yeah, and it's like, I'm aware of that. Yeah, we've had like them. Metal we, on we had them. I think Max and Brett ate Hot Pockets. Well, I'm sure teenage boys love yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not surprised by that. Yeah, the meatball ones. Oh, <laughs> really? I don't know. <laughs> 
All right, you got any RIPs? Yes, I got a few. Yeah, me too. Because it's been two weeks, so we've got two weeks worth of RIPs. And a major one, right? Yes. That you probably talked What's about What's love with got else, to do with but... it? No, I have not talked about it. Oh, yeah, that one. It's just a secondhand emotion, but go ahead. Great album. Yeah. Tina Turner. 83. The iconic and adored singer known as the queen of rock and roll yes. has passed away. Yes. She would reveal years later in her autobiography that she was a victim of domestic abuse. Uh -huh. Everyone's probably seen the movie, but if you don't know the story... She literally ran away from Ike, who was a woman-beating right, asshole. Right, right. She ran across a freeway barefoot, went to a hotel. Wow. And the, had no money, had nothing on her. And luckily, the hotel manager recognized her. She said, I'm good for the money. I just need a room. I need to go call someone. Yeah. And back when humans were allowed to do human things, he said, no problem, Miss Turner. Put her up in a room. And, really? Of, of course. Now, if that guy was my waiter, he would have given course. me the splash of lemonade. But, <laughs> you would have been making Tina pay before you even stepped foot in this building, goddammit. Right? So she got the room and yep. she went to court and told the judge, look, I don't want anything from Ike. Only thing I want, I want to keep my name Tina Turner. That's it. Like bet on herself. You know a lot about Tina well, Turner. That's what I that's what I do. Well, I read we're this gonna shit. see. We're gonna see. Yeah, maybe not. Because I have something. I so the see. judge granted her that. Yeah. And Ike doesn't owe you anything, but you do get to keep the name Tina Turner, and then she just skyrocketed. That that nineteen eighty four album. I mean, forget it. It was monster, right? I mean, you remember it from nineteen eighty three? Tina Turner and Washington softball. You're, you're very That's knowledgeable right. on a few it. different things. After that, don't talk to me. Well, I've got one that I'm waiting to see how knowledgeable in music you are. Oh, boy. Because ever since I saw that this guy died, I never heard of him before. I wanted, I, I was waiting to see whether Hot uh -oh. Chuck was going to be able to tell me who he is. Okay. His name is Chaz Newby. Chaz Newby. I know Chaz Bono. If you don't know Chaz Newby, <laughs> I know Chaz Bono. <laughs> okay. I want to know. You don't know Chaz Newby, I'm who stumped. died this week at the age of 81. He was an English rock bassist. Okay. And a brief member of the Beatles. Really? That's correct. The first left-handed bass guitarist of the Beatles before Paul McCartney became the second. So the Beatles came calling when he was in school. He was a college student in 1960. He was in the middle of his second year at a place called St. Helens College. He was studying chemistry and chemical engineering. The band... 1960, was touring in Germany and they were in need of a bassist because George Harrison had been deported for performing at clubs while underage. So they needed a bassist. Okay. He turned them down. But then, after that, he would play four gigs with the Beatles during what many consider to be the beginning of Beatlemania. A New Year's show that would be Newbie's last with the Beatles as he returned to college on the 4th of January, 1961, he says, I was back at my desk in college and my career as a rocker was over. And he hasn't slept since. So he, so he didn't, so he turned down ah. the Beatles at first, then he joined them for a few shows, and then he said, enough's enough, I gotta go back to college. Right. I can't be hanging with you fellas, you guys are degenerates. That's I don't know right. what, I don't know what's gonna become of you guys, but I gotta go back <laughs> to college. The long hair and the cigarettes, this shit ain't right, gonna last. Right. And I figured you'd know this story. Wow. I know Pete Best, obviously. I don't know who Pete Best is. Yeah, he was the fifth Beatle who oh. yeah, got booted. Well, this guy must have been before him. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's and then amazing. Sheldon Reynolds, the guitarist for the legendary music group Earth, Wind, and Fire has died at the age of 63. Those are the ones that I have. Ever seen them? In person? Yeah, in concert? No. no. Yeah, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Yeah, I know the lead singer re passed away. Don't He's... they change? Isn't that group changed over the years? Well, people keep passing away, yeah. Right. So they, it's not Philip Bailey's group. in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Easy Lover, you know Yeah, him. he did a thing with Phil Collins. 
Easy Lover. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah I remember. I love Earth, Wind, and Fire. In fact, they would they would uh, they would be a good one for the uh, the music things if I ever do those again. Um, Cynthia Wheel or Wild, one of the most prolific and successful songwriters of all time. Her catalog is eye popping. Stay with me. The Righteous Brothers. You've lost that love and feeling. You heard yep. of that song? Yep. Dolly Parton's Here You Come Again. The Drifters and George Benson's On Broadway. I'm sure you love that stupid song. I do. The Crystals. Oh. oh. Up, <laughs> Uptown. Why would you call that a stupid song? I don't, that song isn't. I don't like that song. <laughs> <laughs> on Broadway. On Broadway. <laughs> They're not a stupid song. The Animals. We got to get out of this place. Yeah. Shaka Khan's Through the Fire. On through and on. The fire. 80, great song. Yeah. 82 years old. By the way, You've Lost That Love and Feeling was the most played song of the 20th century. Ooh. How about that? So that's all Cynthia did was write songs like that. She was in her 80s, right? I saw that on Good 82. Someone named Sergio Calderon, who starred in numerous films. You'd recognize him in Men at Black, Pirates of the Caribbean. Great nope. character actor. He passed away at the age of 77. Yes. Uh, we talked about Tina. And then Milt, this guy, uh, can't find his... Oh, that part didn't pace. Anyway, the guy who created the Magic <laughs> Castle. Have you been to the Magic Castle in L.A.? I've seen it. I've gone by it a million times. Yeah. yeah so, so he he formed the Magic Castle. Who's as he? Milt. His name is Milt. I don't know why I don't have his last name. <laughs> Poor guy. This is some tribute. But he, it's a. <laughs> you don't have his name. A private club for magicians located in the heart of Hollywood. I actually went to it like five years ago. And if yeah. you ever get the chance to go, the Magic Castle is really a special, cool place. They opened the doors in 1963, and then yes, Tina Turner. Milt well. Larson. There you go. Dead at the age of 92, and it's not a hoax. Ah, he's dead or is he <laughs> yeah they opened the doors in 1963 him and his brother yeah pretty amazing but yes it's hard to get in you have to be a member or know yeah, a member I, I know that place it's awesome though it's real oh, you've been there i was there like five years ago oh you have to wear a jacket like it's you know you student. have a jacket somehow i have one yes yeah but you just go from like room to room like next show 115 and all these magicians are in it's oh, huge yeah i saw a woman Maybe it's a plant. I don't think so. She yeah. was a magi- she pulled somebody out of the audience and said, "I'm going to unlock your iPhone." She did it. She could tell by the smudges. She unlocked the guy's. She figured out his four-digit code and unlocked his iPhone as a magic trick. That one blew me away. Like the worst woman to date ever, right? <laughs> in the meantime, other magicians are sawing people in half. <laughs> the, and you, the iPhone thing, though, that's pretty damn impressive. How many different combinations are there? And you're going to tell them you can do think, it? I happen to think the iPhone thing is impressive. Thank you. But staying underwater for 17 hours <laughs> and sawing somebody in half seems to be a little more impressive than iPhone We've lock. seen the sawing in half routine. Do your headlines and let me get the hell out of here. One of the biggest holes in human history is yeah. currently being dug by China as they seek to find potential life down there for some reason. You know, I was thinking with a population of 1.4 billion, I think they have enough life in that country. Woman drops out of medical school after earning thousands of dollars a week selling her spit. Hey, good luck to all the college students finish, finishing up finals this week. I hope it all works out for you. A driver in the UK shocked fellow motorists at a gas station last month when he hopped out of his BMW completely naked to get gas. Judging by the picture, he was only there for a quarter tank. And finally, a husband and wife were involved in a car accident. Authorities are blaming, they're blaming this car accident with the husband and wife on a sex act that was being performed on the man while he was driving and he got in the car accident. Investigators are still puzzled as it wasn't even the man's birthday. Remember, two segments of Mike Cameron and you have agreed before next week's show to listen to Dave Zirin, the author of the Jim Brown book. And I just want to hear your thoughts on Jim Brown if they change at all after listening to some of the other things that he did in his life. That's all. 
Okay. It's a lot of pressure for me because I, I I'm not good at remembering stuff. I don't play fantasy football. You know, the, the, the football pool we do every year, that stresses me out. I always forget to put my picks in. Her name is Misty. You can remember that. Well, that one I know. This is the love of my life over here, Misty. But yes, I will listen to it. I Episode 241, ladies and gentlemen. Kind of sucked, but we'll do better hey, the next oh, Speak for yourself. I was brilliant. How dare you? It kind of sucked and will be better the next time. Episode 241.